and welcome to the other side of midnight. I'm your host tonight, uh, Keith Morgan. I usually do the audio engineering, but tonight uh, Richie's is having uh, electrical problems, so I am sitting in for Richard, and uh, I am picking up this uh, from here out. And we seem to have lost our friend Ron Gerbron. So let me see if I can get him back. Uh, let's see. Mm-hmm. Um, so, welcome to the other side of midnight. We're going to be talking about uh, a great subject tonight. We're going to be talking about anti-gravity. That's one of my favorite subjects because now with the, the military coming out with uh, UAPs, the new version of UFOs, just their version so they can disassociate it with it, um, the anti-gravity has a lot of stuff that will give us the ability to do things that uh, we didn't think uh, was possible because anti-gravity is uh, one of those, that's impossible this doesn't fit the physics, the science doesn't match, but it does. And we are just now starting to discover that, even though my opinion is these guys have had anti-gravity since the 1950s after the Roswell crash. And they've been playing with it because Ben Rich said, uh, now we, we have the ability to travel amongst the stars. We could take ET home tomorrow he said, uh, if you've seen it on Star Trek or Star Wars, we've been there, done that, but we found they weren't practical. And he said that uh, it would make George Lucas drool. And then he said, well, these things are all locked up in black projects so tightly that it would take an act of God to get them released. So here we go with someone telling us who worked for Lockheed Skunk Works the guys who gave us the U-2, the guys who gave us the SR-71 Blackbird, the guys who gave us the F-117 Stealth Fighter, the B-1 Stealth Bomber, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's telling us we have technologies that are well beyond man's capabilities. So now we're still groping for stuff, and we're finally putting all the pieces together, and we still have are flying into space on flames. We've been burning stuff since caveman days. It's time to get off of that mess. It's time to move forward and move into the 21st century with our eyes wide open. It's going to be Mark, and let me see if I pronounce your name right, Soko. And he's... Uh, He's been working on anti-gravity, so I'm not going to keep him off any longer because I want to hear what he has to say. But we had a nice conversation before the show, but we're going to be talking about anti-gravity. <laughs> so here's Mark. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm, I'm doing okay. It's uh, just just past midnight here on the East Coast, and we're getting hammered by Hurricane Henry's outer uh, bands. And I'm, I'm here in the lab in Hawthorne, New Jersey, and uh, we're ready to talk about anti-gravity. Like, where do you want me to start? Well, give me a history of a who, beginning. Yeah, tell me who Mark is. Tell me how Mark got into this whole thing, and 
how he, what excited him to say, let me look at something that most people think is impossible. Um, okay, so that, that really started with my childhood. I grew up in a very religious uh, family, uh, religion being Judaism, in Lakewood, New Jersey. My Hebrew name is Yisrael Meir, which means to enlighten Jews, and Meir in English is Mark. That's where the Mark Sokol comes from. Um, and I went to a very uh, religious school, the Lakewood Cheder, which uh, translated the uh, Torah into Yiddish. It was a very um, ultra-Orthodox upbringing, and at the age 13, um, my dad was uh, in Israel for a short while learning there, and he came back. On the way back, his flight turned around and uh, flew back to Israel. I said the the airspace of America was closed. It was uh, September 11th, if you remember that date, 2001. I was 13 at the time, and uh, two weeks later, uh, we, a family of 11 picked up and moved to Israel. My dad took that as a sign that we have to move. We moved to the old city of Jerusalem where I lived for seven years and continued my studies of the Torah, the, the Hebrew Bible in its original Hebrew form. And so I really saw Judaism from both angles, both from the ultra-Orthodox center of Judaism in America, which is uh, Lakewood, New Jersey, and from the center of Judaism worldwide, which is the old city of Jerusalem. And it was only after contemplating everything and like really going deep in on the Torah that I I came to the realization the only thing that could explain the Torah was aliens. Like the ancient astronaut theory that aliens came down with their advanced technology and were manipulating man, splitting of the sea, had to have been some anti-gravity technology. Um, by that time, I was already married with a kid, and I started having these conversations in the synagogue with people. Um, some of them were interested. Some of them thought I was crazy, um, and some of them challenged me back saying, you know, if the technology exists, figure it out. You know, let me see the technology. And um, I took that challenge to heart and started investigating it, trying to figure out what was going on. Um in uh, the end of 2016, or it was like early 2017, I was at a program called Landmark, Landmark Education. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, they basically go into like how the mind works and challenge people to make uh, make themselves better. And at the end of the program, the advanced course, they asked everyone to get up on stage and make a declaration of something they're going to do. And I got up there and said, I'm going to figure out how warp drives work. And uh, the instructor, like even she couldn't contain herself and started laughing but uh sure enough i started this whatsapp group right then and there and it was some people that came over to me that were kind of interested one guy worked for nasa at some point and i put them all in this whatsapp group and just started discussing the topic looking at different effects different claims that were made yada yada and eventually you know more and more people got involved and i started reaching out to people on youtube like uh there's a, a famous youtube channel called alien scientists uh, Jeremy Reese runs that channel. Um, I eventually met up with him. Um, I started running experiments uh, first out of my garage, and then we moved that eventually to the shop. And uh, I, I really just opened up the book, you know, for starting with the the easy, the the uh, low lying fruit of these experiments um, to figure out, you know, there's a claim that's been made. 
uh, by T. Townsend Brown, the gravitator experiment, we call it, where you have parallel plate capacitors, you're charging it up, and there's supposed to be this anti-gravity effect. Let's try that. You know, there's um, uh, the Boyd Bushman effect. Yeah, that was the gravity. Yeah, uh, electrogravitic lifters that people are playing with, like rocket mole- uh, rocket model uh, model rocketry today. So, yeah, I'm sorry. The the electrogravitic thing is is really it should have been something that people should have been paying attention to. Um, the MythBuster did a thing about it. They built a lifter and. Grant Emma Hara couldn't get it to work, so he called the guy that he bought the kit from. He talked him through, and when it lifted up, he was falling off his chair. They said, oh, it's putting out a, a one-mile-an-hour ion wind, and that must be what's lifting it. So they built a vacuum chamber out of plexi, clear plexi, and they put it in there, and they turned it on and said, see, it's not lifting in a vacuum because it's that one-mile-an-hour ion wind. And you could see on the dowel rod in the front, they were burning the dowel rod because they got grease from their fingers on the dowel rod. So the high voltage was running down the dowel rod, burning the dowel rod and it was glowing embers. And anyway, that technology does work. It works in a vacuum. And he, T Townsend Brown proved Um, that back then. So I'm sorry, go ahead and I'm not not so sure. I'm not so sure about working in a vacuum. We've never seen it work in a vacuum. Uh, One thing I could tell you about vacuums that I've learned uh, only through experimentation is that, um, as you get closer to a full vacuum, there's a point where the uh, atmosphere inside the vacuum actually becomes more conductive. So uh, until you pull that really strong vacuum, you're not actually looking at what the craft would operate like in space. Um, ion craft do work. They work off of uh, the process called um, thermohydrodynamics, uh, I mean, uh, electrohydrodynamics, which is high voltage, um, creates this ion wind effect where you, ions are basically um, atoms or molecules that have an extra electron or a, um, uh, a removed electron, and they want to come back to equilibrium so they have it for their, you know, outer shells. And whatnot. So they um, they either if you're charging them negatively, that means they're getting an extra electron because an electron is a negative uh, charged particle, and they're looking for a positive source. And uh, they would go to anything that has that positive source and pick up that elect that deposit that electron on that source. And the movement created from the uh, the particle or the, uh, the molecule going down creates thrust that lifts the craft up. The, the, the main principle behind electrohydrodynamics is that electrons, uh, or the lack of electrons, meaning when you have a positive uh, potential at the lack of electrons, gets emitted from sharp objects and gets attracted to round objects, uh, which is why the lifters usually have a sharp edge and then a rounded edge. Um, I came up with this new design for a lifter, which is basically a piece of aluminum foil that's been shaped in the shape of a bowl. Then you have a rod, usually like a a straw, plastic straw, and then you put some sharp wires on the top. That's where you feed the high-voltage electricity. But it works either way. You can have the high voltage on the rounded end on the bottom, too. That that will work just fine. Uh, The problem is, is of course, then if you had that voltage there, it would short out to the ground right below it. So it's it's a little uh, engineering challenge. It's easier to have it on the top. But that, that's an easy way to do it. I actually had some kids come over to the, 
to the lab a couple of times, and they make these little ion crafts uh, to half an hour to make them. And then we uh, bring them into the back of the lab, charge them up to around 50,000 volts, and they all start to fly. Um, it's, it's a pretty pretty cute project, but it's yeah. not anti-gravity in any shape or form. Uh, it no. is just uh, electro-hydrodynamics, like I explained before. Uh, the B2 Stealth Bomber does use this principle to uh, help out with the thrust. I think they're uh, getting their high-voltage potential off of the, um, leading the jet edge. engine. And the leading edge, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's where they put the uh, high voltage. So the high voltage is coming from the jet engines. There's a way. There's a way to, um, to 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 turn high heat into high voltage. Um, uh, this is one of uh, Tesla's patents, and then they're able to take that that high voltage potential that they got for free, you know, sucking off uh, spare energy off of the uh, the jet engines, and uh, place that potential on the leading edge. What that does. High voltage, um, it, it, it acts like two magnets that are, you're trying to press together. They, it repels every, every uh, molecule of air apart from each other. It makes it all expand. So the air that the um, craft is flying through becomes less dense, and there's, le there's less of a bow shock uh, for the airplane. Also, you know, the, the massive potential that's building up there also has a bit of an ion thrust effect, but that is secondary. The real... You know, the real thing that they're looking for is to reduce the bow shock in the front of the B2, uh, which, which is kind of important. But, um, yeah, so we started off with the uh, with the ion wind stuff, of course, because that was uh, simple. I also uh, checked out the uh, Boyd-Bushman effect. But, um, Boyd Bushman worked for Lockheed, and he, uh, he made a couple of videos that are widely available on YouTube. Uh, before he died, and he explained that they discovered this effect that if you put two magnets so uh, with opposing poles like north to north or south to south, and you force them together and then drop them, they will fall slower than the speed of gravity. Okay, it's an amazing claim. Let's try it out. I, I bought all the components, got this whole uh, te test rig set up. Had was having some trouble with the scale measurements because the scale wouldn't was kept on zeroing out and everything. And uh, I was afraid to actually drop it because the magnets were kind of expensive and heavy. But then uh, I did a little bit more research and found there was a couple of people who already replicated the experiment. It does work. But what do you go from there? Like, well, the, the point of anti-gravity or by anti-gravity, I mean, like, however these flying saucers operate, it's to take off. We're not looking to fall a little bit slower. So... Um, forward from there i couldn't like figure out what the next step would be so that was kind of a dead end uh the um the oh, electrohydrodynamics experiment yeah go ahead I, can i ask you what uh, how much slower do they fall i mean i've heard of those experiments and i i sympathize with you not wanting to bust the magnets but i might have put some uh yoga mats on the floor or something uh i it's the shock that causes the effect, or is it the simple juxtaposition of the fields? Uh, what I think is happening is is the uh, you're, you're repolarizing space as it falls very rapidly because the, the, the field lines that come out of the magnet when they're forced together like that extend outward pretty far, and uh, they're pretty intense. There's high flux. I mean, there's high change in the magnetic field lines as it moves through space. Essentially, what you're doing is creating a linear uh, motor, um, which 
theoretically should work to produce some thrust if you can create a linear motor with a high enough uh, output. By a linear motor, I mean it, motors sure. normally spin electromagnetic fields in a circle, and then there's the central hub that follows those uh, magnetic field lines. Or if you have outboard, it's the other way around. You have the, the magnet, magnetic field lines coming in from the center, and then the magnet from the outside are, are following it. But that's essentially what, a, what, what an electric motor is or an AC motor. Uh, with a linear motor, you're taking that entire thing and straightening it out, and you have magnetic field lines that are just, you know, looping down or in one direction through that, uh, through your rig. And that's what a railgun is or an accelerator, uh, a particle accelerator, essentially just a linear motor with a lot of power to it. Hey, Mark, I, um, I have on my YouTube channel a, a link to a video and I can't think of the guy's name, but this is old guy. He's been in classified stuff and so forth. And he's demonstrating, he, he's demonstrating what he calls a cell. It looks like a, it looks like a elongated um, uh, that's been sliced in half. So the bottom half of it, he spins it in one direction and it spins and spins and spins and slows down. He spins it counterclockwise and it goes around like a turn and a half shutters and stops and starts to go back the opposite direction real slow. And he's telling, explain that. And the guy's saying, is that because of the Earth's rotation? And he says they don't know because it's violating, um, you know, that law that says, uh, what was it, Newton's law? It says uh, uh, object in motion stays in motion unless it acted upon by a an external force but yet here this oh yeah no, those, those toys are yeah i've seen them on uh edmund scientific that's basically a um that's an effect of the shape of the object it, it kind of looks like a uh a lopsided pill right yeah yeah yep yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen that. I know that, he, that that works off of the geometry of it in one direction. It, it sort of raises up a little bit, and then um, when it you know slows down because of resistance, it now wants to turn in the other direction or to get into its lower spin um, environment because it has it has two points, it has two uh, fulcrum points, you know, for the center. That's not anything mysterious at all. Okay. Um, well, I, you could three D you could three D print those too. It's, it's all about the shape, and you got to have a really smooth surface for that to work. Well, what I was trying to was pointing out is that he did the experiment that you just talked about of jamming the two magnets together, the high gauss magnets, putting a bolt through them and bolting them together so they don't repel, so they're stuck. And he dropped them, and he had students standing down at the bottom, and he said, "Pick up the one that hits the ground first." Uh, and 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 hand it to me after I've dropped them, and he said that every time it would be the one that didn't have the magnets in, in it because he put them in some kind of container that they both look like big rocks or something, but he dropped them simultaneously, and the one with the opposing magnets was the last one to fall, which, like you said, it caused it to drop slowly. So he right. he talks exactly he talks about exactly what you just said about opposing magnets. So I found that was very interesting that uh, you had that kind of yeah, technology. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, it, it should work. It's because um, it's space, empty space is not truly empty. There's there's something that's called the uh, the permittivity and permeability of space time, and 
it's a value that doesn't equal zero. And by permittivity and permeability, we're talking about uh, the dielectric strength or the amount of um, voltage that can be contained in empty space before it arcs over. So uh, the, the uh, resistance of space-time is not infinite. Also, the uh, reluctance of space-time, meaning the, uh, the magnetic uh, per um, permeability of space-time is not zero as well. There's, there's a certain amount of um, magnetic flux that can be uh, induced in space-time. And uh, this is what basically gives us the speed of light is those two values. Um, the, the speed of light isn't really about light. It's more about the speed of inductance inside space-time. And when you change uh, the orientation, the spin orientation of you know, these flux lines very rapidly as the magnets are falling through space, you're dragging space-time along with it, in, in a sense, slowing, slowing its fall. Um, and it, it's, it's expected to, you know, uh, even according to uh, modern physics, they would expect something like that to happen, uh, although it would be a very small effect. And uh, g getting back to uh, the other gentleman's uh, question, we're talking about uh, one to maybe 2% difference, not even. It's, it's a pretty small but slightly noticeable effect if you dropped it from a high enough distance. I'm dealing with pretty powerful magnets, so I was afraid to uh, go and sacrifice them like that. If I included a, a rope or something to catch it, that would probably uh, interfere with the test measurements because you're dealing with such a small uh, number. Um, uh, Mark, you weren't doing it in a vacuum. Did you try doing it in a liquid? You could, you could slow the whole process down. Yeah, but if you're doing it in a liquid, then, then, you, uh, then you're dealing with the you know, the inductance of the liquid. I mean, if you took uh, to, uh, um, uh, uh, a changing magnetic field and put it next to a liquid, the liquid would start to spin unless it was, you know, had almost no uh, conductivity. Liquids are affected by magnetic fields, uh, especially mercury. Uh, we, we did an experiment once where we had a vial of mercury here in the lab and uh, spun oh. a, a field around it using a little Dremel and oh the, the mercury was spinning pretty fast um, so oh, sure those, yeah, yeah those those effect, those effects uh, are real um, they are expected they're, they're field effects you're talking about interacting with the field around the craft uh, okay. The uh, okay I'm still digesting the um, uh, inductance of um, the void uh, that you were talking about. Got to be careful that there's, we need a nerd alert button. Got to, you have to define terms <laughs> as you go along oh, so no, that people no, don't get lost. Let's break it down. Yeah, why don't you tell me? Yeah, do it. Okay, so I'm sorry. when we're talking about uh, electricity, there's two components. There's, there's the voltage, which is basically your electron potential. Think of that as water pressure. Then when, when an electron passes through uh, a conductor, it doesn't go through it straight. There's something called an electron drift velocity, which is basically yes. um, the, the electron, when it's passing through the object, you know, it can come in and it can move pretty freaking slowly. Like through copper, even uh, with a DC current, 
um, at a pretty high amperage, the electron is moving about at walking speed, moving very slowly through a copper inductor. If you were to do it through uh, a superconductor, it'd be moving at tens of thousands of miles per second, it'd be moving very quickly. If uh, the electron is moving through, uh, you know, empty space, it's moving at the speed of light. But uh, there's, or almost the speed of light. Yeah, there, so there's the electron drift velocity, and there's also the electron is moving through the object in a spiraling fashion. Um, that creates, uh, you know, thin orientation because it's all spinning in the same direction, the direction it's moving to the right. Um, that spin orientation is what we know of as electromagnetism. Magnetism is spin orientation of electrons. Um, now, the magnetic field permeates outward in the shape of a donut. It goes like up and around. So this is just for a standard magnetic field. So you get more, more complex ones. Um, and anything that's in that donut shape will try to orient itself with the spin orientation of the electron. Um, and uh, that, in a nutshell, is what we're talking about. So the, the electron is, is a, um, a force that's bouncing in and out of the space-time, uh, the space-time around it. So the space-time or the ether that's around that, that, that we're living in is basically the carrier for the electromagnetic wave. So when you have two magnets uh, in, in opposition to each other, north to north, the reason why they're opposing each other is because they're both they both have spin orientations in the same direction, but because they're facing each other, they're, uh, the, the point at which that spin orientation is dictated is coming from the opposite direction. It's sort of like having two clocks. You put them in opposition, you'll see the, the second hands are spinning in the other direction, right? Because right. Of one side, yeah. And when they're in opposition, they don't want to, you know, the, the, those fields don't want to combine. They're fighting each other. That's why you have. That's why the magnets oppose each other. When they're when they're both facing in the same direction, where the where it'll be south to north, then the magnetic fields, the spin orientations, are in the same direction. They want to combine together in order to get to their lowest energy state, which is an important important concept in physics. Everything wants to get to its lowest energy state. Well, why would it want to do that? That's just the law of nature. Everything wants to go to its lowest energy state. You want to hear my uneducated version of why magnets do what they do, why the homopolar effect takes place that uh, Faraday discovered? Uh, I think there is an internal current running in the magnets once the material aligns. It's not just the spin of the electrons. There is a current. When you put that disk conductor on that magnet, that disk magnet, and you spin it all as one unit, that current walks up into that disc through some kind of skin effect, and now you can tap directly into it from the center and the, and the edge, that's your plus and minus, and now you're tapped directly into that high current that's flowing inside the magnet in this hyperdimensional realm, and that's what gives us the high current and the low voltages to give us the homopolar effect. And that's why Bruce De Palma's uh, end machine was 500% efficient, because it was tapped directly into the magnets. He was just using a small amount of energy to move it into the conductor so he could pull it out and tap directly into that, that current. And we know that the current does the work. So that's my uh, uneducated version of what's taking place. Okay, so 
uh, we're oh, coming up. Yeah. We're coming up on the uh, break, so that's why I kind of broke in. So I'm like uh, maybe 30 seconds out from actually going to break. Uh, is there anything that you want to talk about real quick um, before, or, or set us up for it before we come back from break? Uh, we'll definitely uh, ask the viewers, uh, listeners, to uh, check out uh, the terms uh, current and uh, amperage and voltage, um, and you'll see something called the babble in science where uh, one well, – what means one thing to one person can mean something to somebody else, something different to somebody else. So we'll, we'll get into that after the break. Okay. And you're listening to the other side of midnight and I'm hosting Keith Morgan and our guest is uh, Mark Sokol. And we're going to be talking about anti-gravity. And when we come back, we will pick up where we left off and hopefully it will be a really good show tonight. that this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government and control perception on a wide scale is because it's the banks at the core and they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking. Where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air. So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not depositor money that they're loaning you. Uh, they just credit your account with some dollar credits, and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air. And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air. This is Etienne de la Boissy Squared, the author of Government, the Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. And some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news 
with Timothy, Netta, and Kentia. Thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. I'm Keith Morgan, and I'm sitting in for Richard C. Hoagland tonight. Our guest is Mark Sokol, and we're having a great conversation about anti-gravity and a whole bunch of things uh, wrapped up in between. So, Mark, you want to pick up where you left off? Yes, we were talking about uh, electrical currents. Um, So... I've actually had this conversation before with other uh, physicists in the field. Um, depending on how you define electrical current, you can make the uh, uh, you can claim that a magnet does have a current running through it, or that could also not be claimed. Depends on how you define an electrical current. Um, but the definition on Wikipedia is that it's a um, uh, an electrical current is a stream of charged particles, such as electrons or ions, moving through an electric con- electrical conductor space. While there are uh, electro- uh, charged uh, particles, such as electrons, moving through uh, objects, any voltage being applied to them, such as you look at pyrolytic graphite, it has a very high electron drift velocity. The electrons are moving around inside the material uh, at very high rates speed without any actual voltage being applied to it. Um, this is called the electron drift velocity, and uh, they have a very high one at, at room temperature. Um, if you can somehow tap into that and make that a coherent current, then you might be able to uh, create a thermoelectric converter, which is something that would cool down as it releases energy, which would solve the world's electric um, energy crisis, something we talked about before the show. Um, there's a couple other ways to, uh, to, to look at that problem. But basically, electrons moving through a conductor are, is how we define a current. Now, electrons are always spinning around at the speed of light around the different bands around the atoms. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about electron jumping from atom to atom or from molecule to molecule within the, uh, the material, and that's what creates the current. Now, the, the way we're reading the current is we're seeing the magnetic field lines that are created uh, by the movement of the electron. So the, the electron, when it goes from atom to atom, it's sort of spinning around like a spiral. That creates a spin orientation for the electron or a magnetic moment or ma- magnetic direction. When you have a magnetic field, what you're really dealing with is spin orientation of the electron field. Um, the stronger the field, the more, the better oriented it is. Uh, the weaker the field, the less oriented it is, the less coherent it is. And theoretically, there should be an upper limit to which magnetic fields can't get any stronger because it's perfectly oriented. You follow so far? Yep. I did have electronics in high school and my father was a master electrician. And uh, I did work for ABC News for 30 years as an electronics technician. So I understand everything you're talking about. Ohm's Law, Maxwell, all of those guys. Yeah, I got it. But it's our audience that we have to educate on this. So 
Uh, exactly. I just want I just want to make sure make sure that I'm I'm breaking it down to, you know, the simplest level possible. Have you heard of rotational magnetic fields? Uh, the third form of electricity. That's used induction for induction, right? Or just something different than I'm. Well, it's a form of electricity. Like if you were to have magnets moving through space uh, with um, orientation pointing outward. Uh, you would create a, um, a spinning magnetic field in space-time that cannot be shielded against. No Faraday cage, no lead, no nothing can, can shield against it. Um, it's also possible to affect objects that are not magnetic in nature, like plastics and wood can actually be affected by these types of fields. Is this have uh, something to do with the Hutchinson effect? No, the Hutchinson effect is, uh, involves using uh, high voltage mixed with microwaves to, uh, to reach some uh, resonance points. Uh, we're actually in contact with John Hutchinson, but he's, um, uh, he's, he's a very interesting – or he or she, I might add, is a very interesting uh, figure that uh, you know, it's kind of hard to connect with. Uh, but um, – yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get into the Hutchinson effect in a, in a little bit, but um, yeah, essentially the way the way I look at uh, electric fields or, uh, or magnetic fields is spin orientation of the electron. So when we're dealing with a device like the the gravitator, which we were talking about earlier, uh, which is a parallel plate capacitor that uh, T. Townsend Brown claimed would uh, move in the direction of the positive charge maintain that position for a little bit, and then it would slowly fall back to the center. It was hanging on a um, hanging on a, on a rope or something like that. And this is with the charge maintained, and he said there was no ion wind effect uh, going on there. Uh, I tried to replicate this experiment. At first, we did see effects, but it turns out they were electrostatic in nature. Uh, electrostatic repulsion we were dealing with. We had to uh, eliminate certain wires and reorient the experiment. Uh, I did get it to a point where at around 60,000 volts with using a um, an incense stick to measure ion flow to see if there's any wind, we were able to see that there was no wind flow. Uh, we did not see any effect uh, once we were able to correct for all the, uh, the issues. But there was a couple things we didn't do wrong, didn't do uh, right, and I've only learned that they were relevant uh, recently um, through, uh, through through my work with uh, APEC, uh, the Alternative Propulsion Engineering Conference, and learning what other teams that are working with DARPA and uh, NASA, you know, other other teams were working on. It turns out that uh, T. Townsend Brown was using uh, litharge or lead oxide powder inside his dielectric material in between the plates. And the reason why that was important is because when you have um, a static electric field that's on a plate, it's different than if you have the static electric field in contained inside the material from every single little uh, atom of lead oxide that's contained around, you know, contained in wax. It's very different contained inside the material versus when it's on the uh, just on the surface of a plate and that may have contributed to the effect I, I have seen other people replicate the experiment and were able to see some effect and this is what's known as the bifield brown effect people 
there's a big misnomer out there that the, uh, the ion lifter devices are bifold Brown effect. No, that's not true. The only time that bifold was ever mentioned in a patent was uh, the patent number 300-311, uh, the British patent, where um, King Townsend Brown was actually working with bifold, and uh, that was with the the, uh, the gravitator experiment. All the all the later stuff that came, you know, with the uh, ion lifters and the the, the large discs um, that he experimented with in France, those came much later. Those are not by Phil Brown. So uh, that's where that experiment left off. I also tried another version of it uh, using slanted sawtooth waves. Now, you might probably heard a lot about those from Tom Valone, if you've ever had them on from Integrity Research. Uh, basically, the idea is to have a waveform that goes up rapidly and then falls down slowly. Um, uh, I came up with this idea looking at the Podkalov impulse, gravity impulse experiment, which uh, uh, Eugene Podkalov claimed that he took a superconducting disk and charged it up rapidly using a March generator, which is basically a lightning bolt machine and uh, charge it up to like millions of volts and uh, had it discharge through a vacuum chamber to uh, an object that would have very slow electron drift velocity such as silver or copper and uh, in the process he created an impulse that was gravitational in nature meaning it would go through every uh, every object in its path it was laser-like um it it, it did not weaken in any uh, measurable way for as far as they can measure it. Um, and most importantly, every time they would multiply, they would uh, they, they would uh, double the voltage of the impulse, the uh, of the electrical impulse. The gravitational impulse's uh, output would go up tenfold. So when you have an effect like that, where it's times two and you're getting times 10 out, you're obviously able to uh, create an effect off of that. Because if you, if you were to pulse it faster in one direction than the other, there would be a net effect in one direction. Are you it would be like pulse, but... Are, are you familiar with uh, John Searle and the Searle generator? Oh, I'm very familiar with John Searle and the Searle generator. Okay. I, uh, Talked to uh, Jason Verbelli and uh, what's his name? I actually Russell Anderson. I actually interviewed him uh, last weekend at uh, Tesla Tech in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. We were talking about the Soul Generator in great detail. Um, my personal belief is that the Soul Effect Generator is a hoax. Um, I, I, I don't believe. Uh, you know, I don't believe it at the moment. I'm I'm pretty skeptical about stuff like that because the amount of money that's been poured into it, uh, both here in the U.S. and the the Russians spent a lot of money on it as well. They did not see uh, the kind of effects that were uh, that were claimed by John Searle. Um, uh, John claimed that uh, as a teenager working in his uh, mechanic shop, he was able to build this device with uh, lots of 
very complex magnetic fields, and uh, every time you talk about it, the the, uh, the the manufacturing, the engineering just gets more and more complex. Now, from what I understand, he built this build when it. he was working for a, a company to build generators, and he was self-taught, and he used the what he called the the law of the squares to actually put this together. And if those magnets in the cylinders that are holding themselves just above the copper rings are going around at the speed that they're going, shouldn't inertia make those things fly away? Or you're saying that's not what's happening here. This, this, these magnets rollers that are going around the copper ring are not really doing that? Well, just just from the perspective of uh, he, he claims that he built it while he was a teenager working in I, I thought it was his uh, his father's shop. But you're telling me he was working at a uh, a, a generator you know, factory that, that, that built generators. Yeah, that, 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 that could be true. But still, he was able to build this device and get it to work back then. And he claims that it uh, it flew through the ceiling and uh, up into space, and he can never find it again. And no, it, no. It, it, it didn't fly through the ceiling. He was sitting at the kitchen table where his uh, landlady was there in the kitchen, and it went into this super cool effect because when you pull more energy out of it, it doesn't get hot. It gets cooler, and it gets to a superconductive point where then it rose up and got stuck on the ceiling, and when he went to pull it down, his hands virtually almost froze to it, until he shut it down and then but when he had it outside and he was doing this stuff then he created what he called the levity disc and then it would go off into space someplace uh, until he would learn how to control it and then he set up some kind of radio control he sent one around the world using uh, radio relays uh, yeah, yeah I mean, it, he's yeah. got a book uh, I read the book and I think he's telling the truth. It's just we're not at a point to be able to accept what he's telling us. But if his technology comes out, it's going to be a game changer in terms of not only anti-gravity, but also in terms of energy generation. And it's not a free energy device. Yes. It's not a free energy no, device. No, it's a thermoelectric converter. Yeah, if, if that is true of it getting cold, that is very, very exciting because uh, if you're able to convert heat directly into electricity, that is the, that, that is the uh, solution that will solve our energy crisis. Imagine turning on your air conditioner in the summer, and instead of uh, it sucking energy out of the grid, you're actually pumping energy into the grid. You know, and during the winter, you'd have these energy plants on the, on the shore cooling off the ocean water. That would uh, solve the, the world's energy problem once and for all if we had such a device. Um, and there are, you know, theoretical concepts or, or very, uh, uh, very cutting edge uh, experiments that have shown that it is possible using a, uh, a two diode system. Did you know that, what did, is essentially did you, the, the did, Maxwell demon? Okay. Did you know that there's at least three guys who have room temperature superconductors at 57 degrees Fahrenheit, not minus 57 or 70 minus 70. 57 degrees Fahrenheit, superconductive. And they have found out that graphene, which is a one atom thick layer of graphite, uh, 
that is superconductive at superconductive temperatures of minus 70 or whatever. But if you take a second graphene layer and you lay it over top of the first graphene layer, but you offset it by just a little bit on degrees, that takes the temperature coefficient up even higher from like minus 70 up to minus 50. You put a third layer on it, it goes up even higher. So these three guys that I'm still researching and trying to find, they have superconductive devices that are at room temperature of 57 degrees Fahrenheit. So uh, there's also the uh, the University of Alb uh, not of Albany of Rochester recently created room temperature but at very high uh, pressures. Yeah, these... room temperature superconductor. That was a major uh, that was a major discovery just recently uh -huh. in the past couple of months. Um, there's also a claim that uh, monoatomic or very thin layers of bismuth uh, are superconducting. The thing about bismuth is the strongest uh, diamagnetic material. And for those who don't know, uh, diamagnetism is the effect where you apply a magnetic field, you have an equal, uh, you have an opposing magnetic field created inside the material. The reason for this is that the electron drift velocity inside the material is higher than the magnetic field spin rate. So when, when the spin orientation happens, it actually opposes that magnetic field. Um, so the bismuth is the strongest naturally occurring material uh, for diamagnetism. And the, the only known usage for bismuth at the current time is in peptobismol, uh, or which we take for an upset stomach. Uh, bismuth is also pretty rare. It's about two times as common as gold. Um, so if we found any reason to use bismuth in an anti-gravity uh, craft, the uh, the price of bismuth would probably shoot up at the rate that uh, Bitcoin has. It would be like buying Bitcoin at $2. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, bismuth is, is an interesting thing to look at. We tried creating those uh, really thin layers of bismuth. The, the issue is, is you got to do that in a vapor deposition chamber. Bismuth is a very difficult material to work with, which is why there's almost no use for it. Very difficult material to work with. It creates crystals very quickly. The crystals break this uh, superconducting effect um, if, if it truly exists in the first place. So um, we're still unsure about whether that's true or not. But, but it does, um, it does many... get your antacids down in your stomach, right? <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it is kind of good at, uh, you know, working at your antacids and, and all that. I'm sure there's, they could find some other material to do that if, if it turns out that, that bismuth had some other use. But um, that, that's, a, that's another material to look at. Of course, pyrolytic graphite is even more diamagnetic uh, than bismuth. That is not a naturally occurring material. Um, it, it Actually, it could happen uh, naturally near like a uh, thermal thermal uh, thermal event like a geyser or something like that if you had if you had some uh graphite near a geyser you might end up with uh pyrolytic graphite but it's not something that's commonly found in nature um that is actually diamagnetic enough to float and um there's also a lot of materials that are very close to uh, uh to superconducting at plasma levels, meaning at very hot levels. Like you look at the plasma of mercury, that is pretty darn close to being superconducting. Um, that 
found with uh, at least what uh, Popkinoff claimed with his uh, superconducting uh, disk experiments he was using. I think he was using YCBOs or yttrium barium copper oxides. Um, that the uh, superconductor was not actually necessary. It was uh, it, it improved the effect slightly, but uh, using materials like pyrolytic graphite, you can get the same effect uh, at room temperature. It's all about how, how the electron is moving around. And uh, think of it this way. Einstein told us that the theory of relativity, that objects that are moving at, at light speed have these different uh, effects, have these rel relativistic effects. Um, we're made out of objects that are moving at light speed. They're just spinning around in circles. The electrons are spinning around essentially at light speed around the atom. So if you can manipulate those in certain ways, you can you know, use relativity um, to push or pull against space-time. So you, you can use those effects to, to have something to grab onto in order to, uh, to move forward, which is uh, something that uh, Richard Ben Dirk is working on uh, on a DARPA grant right now. Um, there's a company called Quantum Magnetics, and uh, they're, pro they're actually promoting their um, uh, electric motor and a generator. And the electro electric motor is powered from these graphite plates that have some electrode, uh, electrolyte in between the two sandwich plates. And they charge themselves up and deliver like five or six amps. Um, and if you give them like four seconds, they'll charge back up. So they set it up so that they feed a supercapacitor bank or ultracapacitor bank to help take the load off the plates. And they stack the plates, I think, in par parallel or series to get enough current and voltage to be able to um, run the motor. And they pulse the motor seven seconds on, four seconds off, seven seconds on, seven, four seconds off. And these plates continuously provide power and they're not getting charged up. They're just charging themselves up. And I'm wondering, have you heard of that or have you seen this, this company doing this? Um, no, I mean, we, we try to keep a distance from the, uh, the, the free energy folk. Uh, although what you're talking about sounds like it might be a thermoelectric converter. Uh, I hope that it is. Um, the thing is, is that that field has had so many uh, uh, hoaxers and, uh, and charlatans. Uh, charlatans yeah, yeah and I, I've met I've met a few of them. The thing is, is that every uh, venture capitalist or many venture capitalists have a free energy fund. They got they got that you know the zero point energy fund. They got the money. You know they're interested in investing. They want to figure out that problem. Not many of them have a UFO fund. You know they're not looking to uh, figure out anti gravity. Um, I guess it's just too far fetched for them or something. So th there's a lot of incentive to people to, uh, to try and you know get into that field and make some money. Um, the thing is, is that every time you look, we've looked at something like that. You look at it deeper and deeper, and you eventually find that uh, there, there, there's some trick involved there. They're fooling the meter. You know, the, the energy's coming from somewhere else. Um, and the easiest person to fool is yourself. So don't don't think just because the guy is so sincere, you know, he, he's telling the truth. He might be telling the truth that he thinks is true. But um, 
we've never we've never seen true uh, free energy that really that that really shook our pants off. Um, but anyways, moving moving back to uh, anti gravity or tr- trying to figure out how these flying saucers operate. So we tried the uh, the gravitator uh, experiment. The next thing I wanted to try was the uh, the slanted sawtooth wave uh, version of it. Not very easy to create a, sl- a slanted sawtooth wave. Uh, there, there are no uh, amplifiers that, you know, off the shelf can create those kind of effects. Um, one thing I wanted to, to do was to use a, uh, a vacuum tube, control it via fiber optics, and have just a high voltage uh, DC source, and then you'd be pulsing that DC source into something that has some sort of uh, resistor or something like that that can uh, drop the voltage so you get be able to put in a subsequent pulse. And uh, I set it up, it worked. The, uh, the scale that I was using to measure any weight loss went haywire and started showing me like 70 grams of weight loss. I don't trust the numbers on that scale because they were all over the place. Also, I found out later that the um, uh, the vacuum tubes that I was using had a maximum power output of just a couple watts. So uh, I, I went back to the drawing board and searched online for a better uh, vacuum tube, and uh, I found that Berkeley Labs Linear Accelerator was uh, being decommissioned, and they were selling the vacuum tubes online, and those had a power output of 186 megawatt impulse. So um, picked up a couple of those and uh, got them wired up. Uh, so we're just about ready to try that impulse version of the gravitator experiment, which would uh, possibly show us some effect. Um, and and th- these would all be thrust. Later on, we'll get into uh, the inertial mass uh, dampening devices with the Altavon experiment, which is something that I'm knee deep in working on right now. Um, that, that's a very exciting experiment that uh, the government has looked into. And uh, it's something that can really explain how these flying saucers operate and get that going. Okay. Uh, we're about uh, 30 seconds out from our break. So um, when we come back, we'll pick up from from there and just try to stick on the topic of anti-gravity. But all of it comes together with a lot of other strange things that are coming out now, like the quantum glass battery yes. and so forth. It, it's somehow all related. So let's, let's pick up where we left off when we come back, okay? All right. So you guys, we're on the other side of midnight, and our guest is Mark Sokol. I'm your host, Keith Morgan, in place of your regular guest, Richard C. Hoagland. And we'll be back after the break, and I'm hoping you're enjoying this show because I am having a great time.
other side of midnight.com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyperdimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcasts heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio or pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio or pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. And we're going to pick up with our anti-gravity because uh, this is getting really good. I live talking science. And uh, our guest, Mark Sokol, we're going to pick up and get back where he left off. Um, So, Mark, go ahead and continue. Yes. Okay. So, we were talking about, um, yeah, the sawtooth wave generator. Um, which is one of the projects I'm uh, currently working on. We've got the, uh, the Klystron out of the Berkeley Labs linear accelerator when they were decommissioning it. Um, of course, you buy all this kind of equipment at the anti-gravity research uh, website known as eBay. It's the best place to, uh, to buy this kind of random stuff. <laughs> I could see you laughing there. You, you know it's true. There's not, nothing, nothing like eBay. Eggbay. Also Craigslist. Yeah. You know, yeah, we've got we got a couple of stuff off of Craigslist as well, but that those are just lucky uh, lucky chance things. Um, yeah, so we got we got that uh, that Klystron powered up, which Klystron is basic. I mean, a uh, Thyrotron powered up. Thyrotron is basically a high voltage switch that uh, allows for massive amounts of high voltage current to flow through it for a short amount of time and control it using a, a grid voltage. Um, basically, we have this whole thing powered up uh, using just a battery and controlling it via fiber optics so we can pulse the fiber optics and get whatever kind of output pulses we want. And then by uh, completing the circuit on the other end, we're able to get uh, that slanted sawtooth wave and hopefully see some effects. Uh, another thing we're looking at, uh, which I, I have some equipment on the way, is standing waves. Now. Um, uh, this gets into RF territory, uh, radio frequencies. 
basically every uh, object has a, a resonant frequency or several resonant frequencies. And uh, a, an object that would have a near perfect single resonant frequency would be a plate or like a circle, uh, like a circular plate. And if you look at a flying saucer, it's two plates together, it's two saucers. So there is a perfect resonant frequency to that object. Now, when you have a resonant frequency uh, emanating out of the device, you, you're going to put the uh, antenna input in the center. Um, you'd basically end up with these waveforms on top of the plate that are static. They're not really moving around. They're just there in space. Now, those fields, a magnetic field or an electric field that emanates from an object is no longer attached to the object. It is standing in space-time. It is hosted by space-time. It is held there by space-time. It belongs to space-time, pretty much. And if you are able to pull or push against it, you're going to be pulling or pushing against space-time itself. And that would be a theoretical method of creating uh, an alternative propulsion device or a reactionless propulsion device. Um, so that's something that we are currently looking at. Uh, when I was at Tesla Tech uh, just last week for Tesla Tech 2021, and I gave a speech uh, on Friday the 13th, um, uh, one of the earlier speeches, people were talking about, uh, you know, these different devices and stuff. And uh, meanwhile, I was on my phone looking through eBay, trying to find uh, if there was any uh, RF amplifiers out there for uh, my next great experiment. And suddenly uh, there were six of them available, all from one seller. I've never seen this seller before. He happens to be 20 miles away from the hotel. And uh, so I naturally reached out to him and went down to go check out all the goodies that he had. And it turns out that these were decommissioned from Sandia National Labs, where they probably used them for anti-gravity research uh, back in the 50s or 60s or 70s. Uh, equipment is quite old. It's a one of a kind, you know, uh, RF amplifying devices. I couldn't find anywhere else. You can't buy this kind of stuff new anymore. So I picked up a couple pallets worth of that stuff. Uh, one of the interesting things was uh, they had some micro pulsed microwave amplifiers for sale. And uh, pulsed microwaves, by the way, which is what is using radar and also the Elsafonic getting into shortly. Um, is uh, a method that we can potentially explain flying saucers with uh, or dynamic nuclear orientation, which creates this uh, inertial mass shielding or gravity shielding effect. And the company that manufactured it was named Space. And uh, the seller told me that he's never seen that company before. He thinks it was they were built internally at Sandia Labs for a specific purpose. So um, it's very exciting that we were able to get a hold of all that equipment and uh, set it up here in the lab um, for these experiments in the future. Um, by the way, if anyone is interested in working with us on anti-gravity research, um, we are open source. Uh, I, we, as a team, believe that uh, the fundamental science behind anti-gravity or whatever makes these flying saucers operate is not patentable, not IP, 
can't be owned by anyone. It's a fundamental law of physics that has been overlooked or at best or um, intentionally uh, hidden uh, to the detriment of mankind. And as such, before going you know, into a uh, commercial environment where we're going to be manufacturing craft using whatever technology is found to work, uh, we will be, you know, showing everyone what does work and, uh, you know, moving on from there, you know, in, into this new world. The, uh, the, 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 the industry that will be created from the discovery of anti-gravity or uh, by anti-gravity, I, I mean whatever makes flying saucers operate. I'm not talking about something that specifically pushes against gravity. That's, yeah, that well, most people look no... at anti-gravity as a, a transportation system, but it yeah. actually has more potential to be able to do other things like provide energy and so forth. But it's the... I'm not so sure about that. Um, but you don't we'll, think we'll so? We'll see when we figure it out. What it... I, 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 I talked earlier uh, with you off the record about how that could possibly work. Like, let's say um, an, a inertial mass cancellation device was discovered. We could make this massive object, you know, a uh, hundred thousand tons become weightless. Then we could shoot it off into outer space. And as it returns, we'll be able to siphon that energy and, you know, create free energy, quote unquote. But really what we're doing is we're shifting Earth's orbit. We might want to shift Earth's orbit. We might want to get a little farther away from the sun to cool things down a bit. That's another conversation. But that's essentially where that energy is coming from. It's not really free energy. Um, uh, none of the devices that I've ever looked at have any uh, free energy uh, uh, you know, uh, parts to them. Uh, have you seen uh, Sapphire and uh, Brilliant Lights uh, technologies. Uh, Sapphire is using uh, electromagnetic energy. Uh, the principle is that the sun is not a fusion reactor, which I, I think is true, is not a fusion reactor, but is working off of rotating mass. And the more mass you have, the more energy is shunted across from other dimensions. That's why Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, and Uranus are all putting out more energy than they're getting from the sun. And I remember Admiral Truly. Uh, when Hoagland and I were setting up uh, the, the Enterprise mission at Dunbar High School in D.C., uh, truly came down to talk to the students, and he says, we're, we're coming up on Neptune with the Voyager spacecraft, and when we get there, we're going to find this big frozen ball of gas because the planet's so far away from the sun, it's frozen solid. And I raised my hand and said, uh, excuse me, I wouldn't say that if I were you because – the what we are learning from Sidonia and uh, some ancient uh, writings from Mesopotamia, Samaria, that uh, the sun is some kind of hyperdimensional shunt, and rotating mass reaches into other dimensions and shunts energy across. And mathematicians have calculated that uh, a one a key signature of one dimension folding into another one will yield a hexagonal pattern. So when they send Voyager over the pole of Saturn, they see this perfect hexagonal cloud pattern. The clouds are going in the opposite direction of the rotation of the planet at over 300 miles an hour. They go to the corners of the hexagonal, and they turn. And I don't think we have anything in our physics that can actually explain that.
But then they sent Are you a probe. About of, the, uh, the... Yeah, the hexagonal clad part pattern around the pole of Saturn. But then they sent a probe over the pole of Jupiter, and what did they see? Oh, not a hexagonal pattern, but you've got six vortices evenly spaced around the pole of Jupiter. If you connect the centers with straight lines, you got what? Hexagonal. So what's going on? I'm willing to bet you if we had a probe on Ulysses, which is going around the poles of the sun, I bet you if it looked down at the poles, I bet you would see some kind of hexagonal flame pattern or six vortices evenly spaced around the pole, representing that's where the energy is doing its inwelling. I, I can't prove it because I'm not in charge of taking the pictures. But you see where I'm going, right? Rotating mass. The more mass you have, the more energy is shunted across. Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, and Uranus are all putting out more energy than they're getting from the sun. And NASA scratching their heads and butts going, oh, we don't know where the energy is coming from. It's probably nuclear. No. This is how the universe works. We were told that the sun I, I, is not I would, a fusion. Uh, I, would, I would agree with NASA. I, I would agree with NASA on that. There's probably some nuclear stuff going on inside of uh, Jupiter. I was actually just uh, watching, so just earlier tonight, just a couple and hours ago, watching Neptune's some, putting out the Juno project. But Neptune's putting out 2.7 times more energy than it's getting from the sun as well. They said it was going to be frozen. You've got a dark spot on it sitting at 19.5 latitude. You've got clouds. You've got the fastest winds in the solar system of over 700 miles an hour. It's an active planet. It's not frozen solid. So where is that energy coming from? These large gaseous planets could have been suns if they had a little bit more mass. It's working on an electromagnetic scale. The sun is doing the same thing. There are fusion byproducts that take place of the workings of the sun, but they're not what's powering the sun. That's why they can't find all the neutrinos supposed to be streaming from these fusion reactions going on. Okay? We were told by the Palladians the sun is not a fusion reactor. You don't know about the Pleiadians. Uh, that's another story. Yes. Uh, you do? Uh, I'm, I'm, well aware of, I'm well aware of the Pleiadians. Yeah. And, uh, Billy Meyer, that was one of there my early. Uh, yeah. He, I, I think he was the real deal. Um, just looking at the amount of dis, disinformation agents that actively went down there and tried to uh, discredit him, sticking fake photos in and uh, building models trying to uh, replicate it. So. For anyone looking on the surface of the Billy Meyer case might think, oh, this guy is a fraud. But as soon as you dig deeper, you realize that the frauds are the people who were trying to discredit him. And uh, I just uh, saw a video uh, released. Mr. Targ. So, uh, 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 what is this called? The, other, the um, third phase of Moon released a video. They said, this is the clearest shot we've ever seen of uh, one of these saucers. And I'm looking at it, and they said, it kind of looks like uh, Billy Meyer's stuff. And I said, yes, it is Billy Meyer's stuff. That's a beam ship. He shot it with his 8-millimeter film footage, and somebody took it in, cleaned it up, got the scratches or whatever out of the video, and posted it as their, their stuff. No, that's Billy Meyer's oh, stuff. Let's, let's, let's get back to uh, Billy Meyer's explanation. Um, the uh, Samyazi and uh, Aztec and all the people that were teaching Billy Myers supposedly about how you know, the world works and everything. They, they wanted to stay away from the technological aspects of how the craft worked, but he, they did give him a rough overview of what was happening. They said that um, the craft, at uh, first, they call it a beam ship because uh, they use a beam of light as propulsion because light does have a propulsive effect. It's actually Newtonian physics. 
because um, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. But we're talking about grams or micrograms of thrust with a very bright light. So that is enough thrust for some reason to get the craft moving at the speed of light. And then there's a shield, uh, shielding effect around the craft that uh, shields them for the, from the relativistic effects of getting heavier and you know all the things that would happen at the speed of light. Then they remove that shield and the craft uh, converts all of the energy, uh, the matter in the craft into, uh, uh, it, it energizes it somehow and takes it into another dimension where they're able to then travel in that other dimension uh, instantaneously to any point or time in the universe. Um, they make sure not to do that close to any planet because uh, that transition can shift a planet's uh, orbit, uh, which is why the, their traveling takes so long, because most of the time they're just trying to get away from us in order to, uh, uh, to have that transition happen. But um, looking through all of the literature, I found one experiment in particular that is more exciting than the rest that could actually explain how all of this stuff happens. It can explain how flying saucers are able to um, move as quickly as they do and do 90-degree turns at 10,000 miles an hour. And most importantly, able to explain why certain things that flying saucers can't do. Have you ever noticed that a flying saucer cannot do a barrel roll? Yeah, I haven't seen one of those happen yet. Actually, nope. It's not. There was F-16 a. Seen can do it. F- there was a. Uh, it was a photograph taken in 1966. It was actually two photographs. The two two brothers took of this looked like a double pie pan, deep dish pie pan saucer, one on top of the other, and they took one picture looking at it from the side, with vertical. Then it, the next picture, it was turned up on its bottom, is on the edge, and you can see the bottom of it. And on the bottom was this symbol. And in 1984, when the Veronis incident took place, these kids drew pictures of what they had seen. And on the side of the craft, there was this symbol. And I, I talked to Koppel about it, and I said, I've seen the symbol somewhere before. And I went and got my book, and I found that symbol, that picture on the bottom of that book. And that was like, these kids couldn't have made this up in 1984, or was it, excuse me, 1989, because the Internet didn't exist. It was the ARPANET, but the Russian kids didn't have access, something like that. How did they come up with this symbol to put on the side of this craft and on the uh, belt buckles of the extraterrestrials, they said, come out, saw come out of this thing. And it was just, it was just wild that this coincidence just happened to take place. But the brothers took the picture and this thing was on its side. So it wasn't a quite full barrel roll, but it was turned on its side. Right, right. Okay, that, that it, it can turn, it can shift its orientation, but it happens slowly. And there's a there's a very uh, there's a, a salient explanation to why that is the one movement it can only do very slowly, and uh, this this comes back to what we call the Alzafon experiment. So I first discovered or heard about the Alzafon experiment after going live on YouTube on Jeremy Reese's uh, Alien Scientist channel, and uh, somebody in the comments posted a link to uh, a book 
by um, Frederick Alzafon's son, David Alzafon, which is available on Amazon. It's called Anti-Gravity with Present Technology. Uh, was based on a paper that Frederick wrote in 1981. So this has been around for quite some time, 30 years already. And he had applied for a patent already for this technology. It was peer-reviewed uh, for the uh, Advanced uh, Propulsion Conference in um, Colorado Springs, Colorado. And he theorized uh, after learning uh, Einstein's theory of uh, relativity and, and special relativity from one of the people who un understood it best, um, at least according to Einstein, they, he, he uh, found a couple holes in it and uh, wanted to theorize that gravity was actually an electromagnetic interaction between subatomic particles. What, what do we know about gravity that is indisputed is that it comes from the core of the atom. It's not coming from the electrons. It's coming from mass. It's, there's a direct correlation between mass and gravitic interaction. The denser the mass is, the more concentrated the gravity is. Um, it's always attractive. The state of the matter does not change the gravitic uh, effect, meaning the temperature or the magnetic properties do not change um, how strong the gravitic effect is, uh, at least as far as we can tell. Um, so it's, it's coming in the core of the atom. What do we have in the core of the atom? We have these subatomic particles, which are essentially electromagnetic energy or light that's spun around on itself. Now, when you have energy that's spun around on itself, you end up with a gyroscope or gyroscopic effect. Um, now, we, we learned from uh, Boeing, from, uh, from Mike Gamble at Boeing, who was actually working on this for 20 years, he presented at uh, APEC a couple of times, the Alternative Propulsion Engineering Conference, um, that uh, gyroscopes, complex gyroscopic spins, can uh, convert angular momentum, meaning the spinning energy of the uh, gyroscope, and the changes of the gyroscope's axes itself, meaning the spin of the spin, um, can change angular momentum, spinning energy, into linear momentum. Create propellantless propulsion using complex gyroscopic spins. They've never achieved more than like 10% uh, thrust to weight ratio, so you're not seeing anything taking off with this technology. But uh, there are you know, devices in uh, space or satellites that use this type of uh, technology in order to uh, maintain their orbit. And um, we're actually building uh, several prototype devices uh, using gyroscopes to create this, this sort of propellant propulsion. But the concept is if you have complex gyroscopic spins in the core of the atom, and you were to move that atom from point A to point B, AKA linear momentum, that would change the spin orientation of the subatomic particles. That is the source of inertia. So if you have the source of inertia being the complex gyroscopic spins of the, uh, in, in the core of the atom, the way to get rid of the inertia is to remove the complex spins, make them all oriented in the same direction. Um, and by doing so, you're creating coherent matter. You're creating matter that is uh, all spinning in the same direction. The, uh, the axes are all pointing in one direction. If you ever held a gyroscope in your hand, 
you'll see that it's free to move along its plane and its axes without any resistance. But if you try to change the axes, uh, the, 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 the axis spin uh, direction, you'll see that you'll be, uh, you'll be pushing against forces uh, at a, a 90 degree to that uh, change of movement, which is what we see with flying saucers, that they uh, are able to zip off along the axes and along the plane of the craft, but they're not able to change that axis very rapidly because in order to change the axis, let's say the craft weighed 10 tons in, uh, in, in normal sense, but if you uh, got rid of all the, uh, you know, the uh, mass of the craft through dynamic nuclear orientation, through orienting the subatomic particles, the craft now weighs uh, a couple of grams along its uh, plane and axes. Um, if you wanted to shoot off in a different direction than what the axis was pointing at, you would have to then move 10 tons of mass into a new orientation, and then you'd be free to fly off in that new direction. Um, many and the craft use many different methods to achieve that small amount of thrust that they need because uh, dynamic nuclear orientation or uh, this inertial mass cancellation effect um, does not provide thrust. It just makes the craft weightless. Um, this can also explain how the pyramids were built, how the uh, sea was split during the exodus, um, and lots of other uh, effects that have uh, boggled science uh, throughout the years. Uh, Namely, how can you make the pyramids? Well, if you can make things weightless, you know that that makes things a lot easier. Um, this uh, also explains why flying saucers, when they're operating near the ground, they can disturb the ground below them because uh, you know the ground is becoming weightless uh, in itself. Because but essentially, what we're doing is creating nuclear magnetism. We're bringing spin orientation. Instead of uh, the spin orientation of the electrons, we're bringing it down to the proton-neutron level in the core. So we're creating nuclear magnetism. Like electromagnetism is spin orientation of the uh, of the valence electrons. Nuclear magnetism, spin orientation of the core. Um, a laser, for instance, is a, is a coherent light. We're creating coherent matter in order to um, get rid of the uh, inertial effects uh, and uh, make make a craft weightless. Now, uh, Einstein famously said that uh, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. Now, let's rephrase that. The only thing that can travel faster than the speed of light is nothing. So first we have to make the craft weigh nothing, and then we can travel faster than the speed of light. And when you're moving faster than the speed of light, you'll probably be able to move through time as well. Um, and th this explains uh, in some way how the uh, craft that uh, Sumyazi and uh, Billy Meyer were, were traveling on uh, works, you know, because they, they got going up to the speed of light. They had some sort of shield effect, um, and that shield effect is something we will get into at the next segment. Uh, it's actually a very interesting thing that involves, of all things, a 3M plant here in the United States. Um, and also the uh, the arrows that were sh that the Egyptians were firing at the Jews in the Old Testament came sh came flying right back at the uh, Egyptians, uh, according to the Old Testament account. That is um, th th those things are actually related, um, and uh, we'll get into that after the break. But okay. um, the the Alzafon experiment essentially uses EPR to achieve this uh, dynamic nuclear orientation or electron paramagnetic resonance. That is um, something similar to what you find in an MRI machine or a magnetic resonance imaging machine. Start off with a uh, homogeneous or a, a laminar magnetic field. 
which is essentially spin orientation of the uh, valence electrons. And then you pulse the electrons at their precession rate, which is the uh, spin of the axes, uh, which is way up in the gigahertz range. It depends on how strong the magnetic field is. So direct correlation between the strength of the magnetic field and the uh, and the uh, Larmor precession, which is the uh, spin the the spin of the axes or the uh, um, uh, the precession of the axes. Okay. Earth has a precession as well. Happens every twenty five thousand nine hundred years. We call that the precession of the equinox. The electrons precession happens billions of times per second, depending on the strength of the magnetic field. Okay. And we energize that spin and use it to orient the core. Okay, we're coming up on the break, uh, and we lost Ron. So I got to get back, get Ron back in as well. But uh, I'm going to. Oh, yeah, we love you, Ron. I'm going to bring up a subject. It may be a sore thumb, and it might, it might not be. But we'll we'll find out when we come back, and I, and I'll ask you about it. Okay. So you guys, you're on the other side of midnight. I'm your host Keith Morgan, sitting in for Richard C. Hoagland, and our guest is Mark Sokol. And we're talking anti-gravity and a whole bunch of little things stuck in between. But we're we're having fun. So uh, as soon as we come back from this break, I'm going to ask Mark about a real controversy that's been around for a little bit and see how he thinks this technology that has been mentioned before works. Okay. As you continue to work on yourself, the tribe comes forward. They'll come right to your door. So just keep doing the work and it'll come together. Yep, as you increase your frequency, then you become more mature in your manifestation abilities and your other higher senses and gifts come online and then you have more power to make your world different and better and how you want it. And so that's why working on yourself is so important because then you're going to create the reality that you want rather than get sucked into the dystopia that's being created by the negative or shadow side. We're becoming uh, renaissance men and women where we have multiple skill sets and we can 
dance from science into art, and we can use both sides of our hemispheres, and we can realize how much we have to really offer and uh, grow into. And this is what's happening now. This is where we're headed into a really beautiful place. So we can rejoice in that despite the fear, despite what it looks like on the outside. This is how disease transforms. The mess in the chaos is necessary in order to see what you have before you so you can clean it up and just make decisions to change your reality. If you don't see it, how do you know it's there to even be changed or if you ignore it, right? then how can you make the differences? You can't. So the mess is before us, accept our mess, and now know that that's part of empowerment to be able to see and to be able to transform it. Hi, this is Amanda Vollmer, and I was on the other side of the news, and I really enjoyed my time discussing deeper topics and really getting to the heart of truth and the things that matter in this world and what we are doing and why we're here and and what we're heading towards. I really recommend listening in and and learning, uh, expanding your awareness and your knowledge. It's important and these are the times to do it and we're being asked to pay attention and to challenge ourselves and uh, think beyond, beyond the box. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. And uh, we've been having a great conversation about anti-gravity with our guest, Mark Sokol. And we're going to pick that, pick that up, but I'm going to ask Mark about what he thinks about this one subject. Uh, Mark, you're familiar with Bob Lazar, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we could get into Bob Lazar in a minute, but can I just finish up the Alzheimer's experiment? Sure, go ahead. Because that, that that's that's something that I'm actually working on at the moment, and uh, it's it's pretty exciting. So uh, before we were talking about creating this this state of coherent matter, where all the spins are going in the same direction. Um, now there's a lot of ways to create. Um, spin orientation or dynamic nuclear orientation. I actually got the book on it. Uh, the most latest, the latest book that's written on the subject was actually put out in the 60s and is fairly available. Um, so it's not something that's really taught in colleges anymore. Um, EPR, or electron paramagnetic resonance, uh, is a similar effect. What they're doing is uh, hitting the electron at its uh, Larmor precession at the frequency that the the axes rotate. Um, And that is directly correlated to the strength of the magnetic field. So there's a a gyromagnetic ratio of 28.025 gigahertz per Tesla, meaning the stronger the magnetic field is, the higher the frequency precession. So what we need to do is get a homogeneous magnetic field. The sample material that we're going to be testing for weight loss, the entire sample sitting in a magnetic field of exactly the same strength. That's not an easy uh, um, effect to achieve uh, in a laboratory setting without you know, building an entire ship, actually. Um, you need a very large electromagnet. Um, 
similar to what they have in hospitals for an MRI machine. Uh, so th that was one of the hardest parts to achieve. And then you have to have microwaves that are pulsing. Um, normally in EPR, they have a continuous microwave impulse to just continuously be energizing it. But if you want to get the subatomic particles uh, energized uh, or oriented, you need to pulse the valence electrons, energize them a bit using their uh, precession, and then they're able to transfer over that extra energy to the core using a process called hyperfine coupling. Um, and you do this in, uh, in pulses every uh, couple of milliseconds, depends on the temperature of the sample and the, uh, the material the sample is made out of. Uh, Frederick Alzafon um, recommended using aluminum or magnesium for this uh, experiment because aluminum has uh, a very high dynamic nuclear orientation retention time at room temperature. Colder you make the material, the longer they're able to maintain these nuclear effects because temperature is basically just uh, uh, molecules shaking around and you know that induces randomness or incoherence. So uh, we're using aluminum as he suggested. Also, we throw in a you throw in a little bit of iron, talking around a, a half a percent or one percent of iron in there, and that is to make sure that the uh, magnetic field permeates the sample properly. Also, we're not dealing with a solid piece of aluminum because there's the uh, skin effect um, where RF frequencies don't get deep into the material. They only uh, uh, move along the skin. Um, the higher the frequency, the thinner the skin effect. And so we're using powdered aluminum and iron inside of an epoxy material, which basically ignores the microwaves. Um, in one of the first experiments we ran, we uh, built, uh, this is me and a, and a uh, fellow scientist, uh, Jeremiah Pop, who's also a uh, self-taught uh, engineer and physicist uh, working on these kind of things. Um, I met him through the uh, Alien Scientist channel. And uh, he came down to the lab here in Hawthorne, New Jersey, and uh, we, we ran this experiment. Uh, one, of, one of the inertial, uh, initial tests um, saw some positive results of around 17.8% weight loss. Um, there was a lot of noise in the sampling because the microwaves that we're working with are pretty small. They're around uh, 10 gigahertz or uh, two and a half centimeter wavelengths. And uh, that was getting inside of the um, the, the sample, the, the weight measuring uh, tools, and we tried to shield against it. But there still was some, uh, you know, some residual effect there. But we, we did see something uh, promising enough to continue. Um, also, the magnetic field that we were working with wasn't perfectly homogenous. It was a, uh, a home-built electromagnet, which is not which was pretty insufficient for the experiment uh, needed. Now we've got a new electromagnet, weighs around a ton. Um, and by ton, I mean 2,000 pounds, and we got these really heavy-duty casters on it to be able to move it around the shop. Uh, had to take it off of the, um, the truck uh, using a forklift. Um, Mark? And Yes, Mark. Uh, I'm, I'm swimming in a sea of jargon here. What is your what was your experiment doing? You're so giving me you're giving me a progress report, but what was it an experiment to try and do? 
or was it a demonstration of concept? I just want to know where we're going here. Go ahead. It's a um, it's a proof of concept to show that this effect works. We were trying to see weight loss. Basically, we have this sample hanging inside the magnetic field, and we're bombarding it with pulsed microwaves at the more frequency. Okay. Um, how is it? Ha- what's how is it hanging inside there? Okay, they're asking very relevant questions. So, because suspended of it, on a wire, it's suspended on uh, not a wire. We're using a fishing line because uh, a wire is uh, ferromagnetic; it would interact with the magnetic field and screw around. So we also um, it needed a, a sort of a rig in order to keep it from flopping to the side because the ferrous material wants to short out the, ma- the magnetic field, like and it would turn to the side. So what we had to do is create this sort of dolly contraption with um, basically rails and it's all using uh, PETG plastic that is not affected by the microwaves and uh, more fishing line, um, you know, with uh, weights underneath in order to keep everything nice and easy, smack and center inside this uh, saddle point so that it doesn't uh, shift to either side and we can get a, an accurate measurement. Uh, and we're not just looking at the effects of the strong magnetic field. Uh, but can you? Uh, what kind of weight loss are you getting? You know, you said seventeen and a half percent in that experiment. Is that is that typical? I mean, how do you translate this to a thrust? Uh, you don't translate it to a thrust. Uh, the experiment, if it works properly, and if we uh, were were to scale it up, will not provide any thrust. It will just make secondary thrusts that you have other uh, um, propulsion devices much more relevant because like there are devices like the Woodward device that that, you know that works that uses several milligrams of thrust but you can't do anything with that you know to to get a craft to lift because the craft weighs several tons but if you can get weighing you know several grams or something like that and and it's free to move along its plane and axes then suddenly all these secondary thrust devices can um can get the craft moving at, at, at crazy speeds that we've seen okay and how are all the people on board the ship that you have this um uh sounds like gravity plating from star trek actually i never understood what they were talking about but uh, okay ron hold on you're talking about ron, hold on a second yes. okay um mark um, uh, we talked about Bruce De Palma, remember? And he created the end machine the, that uh, put out more than what was going in. But he also did an experiment because I think it was George Adamski uh, back in the day when he was an abductee or, or contactee. And he asked them, how did these craft function? And they said it was like based on two discs rotating in opposite directions. So Dr. Bruce De Palma took this concept where he had a heavy steel slab with two rods sticking up out of, at a distance apart. And on top of each of the rods, there were these flywheels or discs, and they were heavy steel flywheels. The whole thing weighed about 600 pounds, and he would start to turn these discs in opposite directions on the top of the rods. And he didn't have to get them going fast. He just had to get them going. And this 600-pound device would lose six pounds. And he called it his anti-gravity device. Now, he showed it to some yeah, people. Yeah, that, that's gyroscopic. Um, that, that's 
the uh, gyroscopic effect that we talked about earlier. Okay. Um, that works. I've I've seen it work. Um, it, it never achieved a hundred percent, you know, thrust to weight ratio. I think the best they've ever achieved was um, on the order of about ten percent, and uh, that was at that was with uh, Mike Gamble working at Boeing, and the device weighed around fifteen hundred pounds and was pushing over a hundred pounds of thrust. So those devices do work. Um, you know, that's proven technology that we uh, have replicated here in the lab, you know, to some extent, and we're we're working on version uh, four of that already. Um, and uh, at the lab here, we have quite a manufacturing capability. We've got a large Haas uh, CNC machine and 3D printing and uh, high voltage electronics. So like all of these experiments that you're thinking about, we can actually replicate them here. But um, getting back to the Aldspawn experiment, the reason why it's so exciting is because it's the only experiment I've ever seen that can really explain how these flying saucers operate and make the other experiments, like like the one you just mentioned with the gyroscopes, make that effect strong enough to actually get you into outer space, to actually move you, you know, at, at these crazy velocities. Essentially, if you become weightless, you can make it to the moon with a can of hairspray. So. First, let's get the craft weighing almost nothing. Um, well, we have this massive electromagnet around the sample in order to try to get that weightlessness happening. Uh, if this were to work, we would do it the other way around, which is we'd create a magnetic field inside the craft, then have the, the, uh, the skin of the craft inside the homogeneous magnetic field lines, bombard those with uh, microwaves from the outside, this way, the the, uh, the skin of the craft will both act as a Faraday um, shield, protecting the occupants from the microwaves, and also it would provide the dynamic nuclear orientation, which is necessary to make the uh, craft weightless. Um, two designs come to mind. One is uh, if you just use a large coil and follow the homogeneous field lines of it, uh, you'd end up with a saucer-shaped device. So that would be the flying saucer shape. Another way to do it is to create a large, long coil and have the um, the skin of the craft right outside of that coil, so just like right on top of it. And that craft would look like a uh, cigar shape, which is a pretty common shape. We've also seen it in the Old Testament, the... Um, the pillar of fire and smoke that Jehovah flew around on, um, that was shaped like a cigar-shaped flying contraption. Um, and uh, that is probably one of the easiest uh, designs to work with. I actually have over here uh, the waveguides that we plan on using, We've got like a flexible waveguide in order to inject the microwaves into uh, that experiment. This way we'll be able to see if there's any weight loss because normally waveguides wave are like made out of solid, solid metal. So we've got the flexible one to see if there's any weight loss on okay. it. So can, can I bring up the, that sore thumb again? Uh, Bob Lazar says that uh, when he was working at S4, um, the theory that they had was that the, this element 115 was the power source and the wave generator for creating a wave that they threw out of phase with the Earth's wave in terms of gravity to give them the lift. So uh, element 115 didn't exist at the time that he was telling people about this, but 
the the Russians came along and they created Element 115, which they called Moscovium, Moscovium, and of course we call it Ununpenium, but it's Element 115 on the periodic table. He Ununpenium. says uh, Ununpenium, not Ununpenium. 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 Yeah. That's from Lazar. Yeah, that's what he's. Yeah. It also has. Autumn Pentium is the proper name, or Muscovium. Uh, unobtainium is a joke. It's uh, between the words unobtainable, mm-hmm. if you can't get it, and turning that into an element. It's Thank for you. any uh, material that has such special uh, you know, properties that is almost impossible to make. Uh, about Bob Lazar, I've dove in, into that a couple of times, and Jeremy Ray, sailor and scientist, uh, he's actually gone to the point of making a website, BobLazarDebunk.com. Um, hmm. Basically, I think Bob Lazar was telling the truth, but it, listen carefully to his story. He's not saying this is how it works. He's saying this is how I was told it works. Yeah. Um, there's a strong distinction there. He didn't work there for very long. He was also a person that was known to blab his mouth, could have never um, possibly gotten a, uh, a clearance to work in such a high security place in a serious manner. I think he was brought in as a disinformation agent, knowing that he would probably blab his mouth, um, and uh, they just fed him a whole bunch of lies and showed him some real technology. But he knows that he saw something real, and he knows what they told him about it, but uh, what they told him was complete and utter bullshit. And let's dive into what they I, told him. They told, I they think told that's him pretty good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah no, I see where you're going. I like that. There's element 115, and they're bombarding it with uh, a neutron source. A proton. Making well, tell everybody why. Tell everybody why. They, uh, there I are, will. The, the mathematicians have this idea that there, are, that there are little islands of stability higher up in the uh, periodic chart. That's, and, not, yeah. that, that's not the issue. There's other issues that are just you know, flat-out impossible. Uh, one thing in particular is uh, his explanation of how it works. Uh, element 115, he claims, is stable. We haven't found that isotope of, uh, of uh, element 115 that's stable yet. Let's say it exists. But, okay, I'll give him that. But when you bombard it with this uh, uh, linear accelerator and turning it into element 116, he says that magically is antimatter. Now, the problem is, is that Antimatter. Well, he said it gives off antimatter, which then falls down the tune chamber into matter. There's 100% annihilation. There's 100% thermocouple, which converts that energy directly to electrical energy, which runs to craft. He said the the A wave extends outside the nucleus of the atom, and they take that A wave and they amplify it just like any other wave. Let's let's, let's get back to the beginning. Element 115 is changed into element 116, which is antimatter. Mm-hmm. Um, if it gives off antimatter, antimatter. How could that happen? He never said that. Not that. I mean, he said the he said the transition part, but I don't uh, the antimatter part. Matter part uh, I don't recollect that. He I said he said elements 116 immediately starts to decay, giving off antimatter um, because that antimatter then falls down this tune chamber into the matter. And there's 100% annihilation, and that energy is converted through a 100% thermocouple, no such thing as we know, 
and that runs the electricity in the craft. I mean, the, 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 the oh, well, that's complete uh, bovine flashlights. Yeah. Mm, Sorry. Well, the hundred percent thermoelectric converter might be possible. Um, we've seen superconducting materials, so maybe there is a hundred percent thermoelectric converter, and I, I want one badly. But um, <laughs> me too. The main problem is. The main problem is, is uh, making this antimatter because antimatter starts off with antiprotons, anti-electrons, antiprotons and um, mm-hmm. anti-neutrons. Uh, anti anti-electrons are created in certain reactions. That is possible uh, to make. Mm-hmm. But uh, they're called positrons. Like lightning has some positrons and all that. But right. um, you're not you're not going to turn regular matter into antimatter. It's simply not possible. The only place that we're making true antimatter is at CERN right now. But he, they're, he, they're, remember they're he said he didn't hydrogen. he didn't turn it into antimatter. It decayed giving off antimatter. That's a little bit different. So shooting the proton into it's it is decaying back to uh it, it, it's decaying back to element 115? No. It, no I it, think they now, pumped it up and it turned into 116, which it then decayed back from almost immediately, and, that, and it gave off energy in the process. And because of the way that uh, subatomic physics seems to work, that's more energy than the amount that they pumped into it to raise it to a higher state. But, yeah, this stuff with the uh, antimatters, that sounds – conflated in there. But he somehow. did say that know. the scientists tried to cut one of these reactors open and, yeah, and, and, and it was a huge explosion. Well. I mean, that would be true. That's why that he was recruited be because that story was uh yeah. That would be true even if that story was that explanation was, was bullshit. But let's get back to the element one fifteen turning into element one sixteen. Even yeah. if if you add a proton into uh one element, turn it into the next element. Um and then it decays back, it's going to be releasing a proton uh, out. It's not going to be releasing antimatter. Um, that's just not the way we've ever seen any physics work. Well, um, when, you, when, you have, when we have radioactive material, uh, it's giving off all kinds of elements, uh, not elements, but um, particles, right? That's what the radiation is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But does yeah, the material it, it, it return to, a, to the previous element just before it not for thousands of years or whatever because it's still giving off this energy or particles um, some material no 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 back. yeah some do some some turn back actually in fractions of a second mm-hmm. well, everything is yeah well we've got the island of stability yeah. where this material is stable enough where it doesn't give off any kind of uh particle radiation but when you put the 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 proton in and you go to element 116 then it, it gives off an equivalent of antimatter, and 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 then it becomes stable again because now it's 115 again. So I I don't know whether he's telling the truth. It, but I, I think I think he was saying that the element 116 is converged completely into antimatter. If I'm wrong on that, and you're saying that it uh, it just produces one uh, one proton one antiproton out, and then you can combine that with a regular proton, then essentially what you're doing is you're taking a regular proton and you're doubling its energy. So you're putting in one proton, you get out two protons, if that is true. But um, that, that wasn't my understanding of his explanation. And yeah. uh, it, it would be amazing if such a thing worked. Another interesting thing about element 115 is the element that's right above it in the same family, element 83. 
is uh, the bismuth, which we talked about earlier, which is possibly superconducting. It's the strongest uh, naturally occurring diamagnetic material. And uh, that's something we're looking at um, deeply here at the lab. We've got several pounds of it. We've been uh, shaping into several different shapes for uh, various experiments. Um, but th that, is, that, that is one of my main issues with this whole Bob Lazar story is the fact that he said that element 116 is, it becomes antimatter. That's, that's hogwash. That, that's, that never happens. Yeah. And any, um, uh, that, that's impossible, basically, because the, the, the particles that make up the entire the element 115 that we just added on another proton tube, they're all regular matter spinning in one direction. You're not going to get them to spin in the other direction and push by adding more regular matter. Um, well, another thing that he said that was kind of interesting is when he was in the base of the craft, he saw these, uh, they, what they told him was gravity waveguides or, or tuned chambers. And he the said they actually like microwaves. They, looked, they said they looked like microwave waveguides, which is, that's Alzafon. You know, you got microwave waveguides running through the craft or through the skin of the craft and, you know, making it weightless. So um, I, I saw some uh, interesting synchronicities there, but that was one of the only things that they didn't tell him that was his own intuition from looking at the craft, which is why I say I think he was telling the truth and fed bullshit. Yeah, yeah I, that sounds good. I've, I've faced some of that myself. You get an information source that f tells you things that they don't, they don't realize that you know that what they're telling you is ridiculous, you know, or contraindicated by something that is a common sense um, answer. And they, uh, but you know, they want this information out there. I think you, I think you nailed it with Lazar because I think he's basically sincere. He's certainly a very bright fellow. And uh, this, but this bit about waveguides. Yeah. Um, well, did you guys notice that he had? He's supposed to have a portion of element 115, and when he well, did he an inter it, interview. After he did that interview, it was like the FBI came in and raided his place for something else. But I think they were looking for the element 115. So right, and he says he doesn't have it around anymore. Yeah, I know. I heard him discussing that on uh, uh, with Art at one time or another. He claims he doesn't have it anymore, of course. But so would I. He also uh, claimed that he saw a device that uh, they told him was the power supply. Um, or the, uh, the the reactor chamber, and he tried putting his hand close to it, and the closer his hand got, the stronger the um, field got. Uh, push like his hand away. It was like a mm -hmm. yeah, it was pushing his hand away, and that's something we'll get into after in the next segment. That's an actual effect that can be replicated in the lab, um, and it's been seen as a shielding effect around these flying saucers. So like if you shoot a kinetic weapon at them, they'll come flying back right at you. Okay, but, guys, uh, uh, we're at the uh, bottom of the break. Uh, keep that thought, though, Mark, because this is getting good. Okay, uh, and we'll be right back after we have this short break. Hopefully, this will be a short break, and uh, Ron will be back with us as well because he's he got lost there for a second. You're listening to the other side of midnight. I'm your host, uh, Keith Morgan. Uh, your guest is Mark Sokol, and uh, our co-host, my co-host, is Ron Gerbon. Be back in a minute.
Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. Uh, uh, and we're talking about anti-gravity tonight. Um, your host uh, sitting in for Richard C. Hoagland. And it hasn't been dull. It's been a great conversation going on. And we seem to have lost Ron, which I'm going to call back in a minute if he stops calling my cell phone. And <clears throat> he's co-hosting with us. <laughs> So uh, we're going to pick up where we left off. We were kind of talking about uh, Babel Lazar, 
and we were talking about element 115 and kind of things like that. But uh, the technology in terms of anti-gravity, there's a lot of different concepts and ideas about what actually produces it. And uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to open up Mark right now. You're pretty familiar with uh, Salvador Payas's uh, patent, correct? Oh, yeah. I'm, I've read a couple of those patents. Uh, I think, um, yeah, they, they're pointing toward the Alzafon experiment. Uh, they, they talk about uh, uh, microwaves in the hull of the craft creating uh, an inertial mass shielding effect or gravity shielding effect. So, um, you know, if it does actually work, it points toward, uh, you know, that Alzafon theory of uh, anti-gravity with present technology actually works. And uh, that's, that's what the uh, Navy's been doing since the, uh, since the 50s. Okay, we have, um, some, we have some things it, posted that you, in your section of uh, the other side of midnight.com in the, tonight's show. Uh, there's uh, images of, the first image is of, uh, can, you, can you see that on your browser? Um, and to get to the get to the web page, you go to the other side of midnight.com. Uh, you click on tonight's show in the show banner, and it'll take you to uh, the page that has the pictures for Mark's stuff. And the first picture says it's a superconductor bilayer gravi- gravity impulse experiment. Uh, would you like to comment on that? Oh, that's a uh, YouTube video. Um, yeah, it's the superconductor uh, bilayer gravity impulse experiment. This was an attempt at the Podskolonov uh, gravity impulse experiment that, that I talked about earlier. Um, it wasn't done uh, completely uh, to the letter of what uh, Podskolonov claimed was necessary. It was missing some key components. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we did manage to impulse the superconducting uh, materials with uh, I think it was around 10 or 15,000 volts uh, a lot of current Um, the uh, doer practically exploded when that happened we didn't see much of an effect Uh, it needed to have been done inside of a vacuum so there are lots of components that were missing and uh, I hope to do it correctly in the future and see if anything comes of that but I definitely recommend anyone who's interested to watch those videos. Uh, it was edited by yours truly. Um, it cut it down to about 12 minutes. And uh, you can see all the pertinent parts of the experiment. This was also done live on the Alien Scientist YouTube channel. He actually came down to the lab. He's come down quite a few times. And we uh, you know, ran experiments live on YouTube, which is uh, quite a feat because it's hard to get these experiments going. And uh, predict when they'll be ready. Um, uh, that, that, that's just one experiment we did. The next thing you'll see is a short history of anti-gravity technology. This was a presentation. It was actually the first in-person presentation that I was asked to give at Disclosure Network New York. I'm right here in New Jersey, so that's just a short drive away. That's Stephen um, Greer's Displ- uh, Disclosure Project? Yes, it's related to Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project. He was one of the uh, uh, he was inspired by Stephen Greer. Um, I forgot who runs that show. Um, 
but uh, he asked me to give a presentation in February, February 16th originally of 2020. Then um, scheduling conflict had me moved up to February 2nd. Um, and if you look at the date, it's kind of an interesting date. It's 0202-2020. It's like the, hmm. you know, the 2020 of 2020. I'm going to get even crazier than that. It was supposed to start at 2 p.m., um, but the guy who was given his uh, presentation on the 16th wanted to uh, give an introduction. So we started at 2.20 on 0202-2020. So it was really uh, – the synchronicities were lining up and – that's something I can get into a lot. It's a very interesting uh, presentation, very okay. well put together with nice slides. You can check that out on my YouTube channel as well. The next uh, video you see over there is uh, electrets. We were making electrets for an anti-gravity experiment. This is based off of Ron Keita. Uh, he claimed that electrets uh, exhibit anti-gravity properties, like they, they have they lose weight in certain, when they're oriented in certain directions. We successfully created electrodes. And for those who don't know, an electrode is a it's a static magnet. So there's a uh, an electromag or a magnet is the spin orientation of the electrons inside a um, an object and they're locked in place and that creates magnetism. Um, you can also create electricity or electrical potential uh, inside of a very high strength dielectric material by melting the material, bringing it to its viscous state or slightly viscous state, applying a very high um, electric field. We're talking 70,000 volts or more of DC potential as it cools into its solid state. And by doing this, the, um, the the molecules of the material become polarized by the uh, uh, electric field potentials, and it basically becomes a static magnet. Um, the the, uh, the material doesn't uh, it doesn't have a potential for you know actually creating a continuous current thrust. So, you know you can't actually get electricity off of it, but you could by moving it in relation to other um, conductors, you can actually turn that energy directly into electricity, which is something that we've shown in the presentation. We turned off the lights. Um, it's in there. You can see we're just basically lifting the, uh, the plate off of um, the, the electric off of a plate, and then there's an electric potential that builds up, and you're able to short it out and get a little spark. And that energy was then transferred from lifting the electric moving the electrode around directly into electricity. So that's a pretty cool effect. Um, we put the electrode on a scale to see if there's any weight loss. Um, as expected, there was electrostatic repulsion when the electrode was close to the scale. That is true with any material. You'd expect electrostatic repulsion effects. But when we put a piece of dielectric, we put in this case it was uh, styrofoam cups that we used, um, between the scale and the electric, you know, the weight measurement shouldn't change because you're just adding uh, these styrofoam cups. But when we did that, the weight loss, if all but vanished, because there was no longer the electrostatic repulsion effect. So uh, that is where we left off with that experiment. I don't don't think the electrics actually uh, produce anti-gravity effect, but they can uh, potentially work. You know, if they um, uh, a thermal, a direct thermal electric uh, converter, um, a, in some form or fashion. I would 
I would uh, hope somebody can actually do something with that. And that's, that's pretty much what we have going on on the, uh, on the website right now. Okay. Um, wow. So the, the, there's a video of, um, God, uh, he's, I think he was Russian and he oh, thinks, Cherkov? yeah, with the, the, the bees wings or the, and so forth. Oh, Grabinikov. Yeah. Grabinikov. I think you're talking about Grabinikov. Okay. So that was one of the, uh, places where, um, and I've done this before and I might have made the same mistake with Searle, but, uh, I jumped out at first and said, no, that can't possibly work. That's uh, it's all bullshit. But the, the deeper I looked into that, the more we realized there might be something there. Um, he, he's talking about uh, the, uh, the those second covers that beetles have on their wings. And there's a question of how beetles can actually fly. Um, and it's possible that it has something to do with electrostatic scalar fields. Yeah, because um, you ever see a bee maneuver? These things be turning and zipping and stopping on a dime and... But a bee, a bee is, is is a different you know thing altogether. A bee has its wings in free air, whereas imagine if you were to put a cover on those wings that's static. How in the world can a bee or a bug fly with a cover on top of them? Now we understand why why it has the cover. They theorize that it has something to do with the rain, you know, not hurting the wings. But really, what is those covers there for? And how does the the freaking beetle fly? Well, the big the big bumblebees, the black bumblebees. They're supposed to be uh, aerodynamically impossible flying, but they do it, and I see them zipping and stopping, and pretty much what I see these uh, UAPs doing, you know, they're making these weird maneuvers. So there's something in nature that we just didn't pick up on, or we picked up on it, and then we forgot it somewhere in the dark ages. But I think that's why the Egyptians uh, revered the beetle, because they know something. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And, and, and the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians were uh, much closer to this technology. Uh, you know, back in the day, there was, there was uh, flying saucers over their heads all the time. And they just revered the uh, occupants of those saucers as gods and gave them all these names and stuff and, uh, you know, worshipped them and whatnot. But if you look deeper into the, uh, the mystery of the beetle and how it's able to fly, you can see some other... Uh, cool effects that might be uh, related, such as uh, scalar fields. And uh, I would like to break down what a scalar field is okay. you know, for the audience. Um, so basically, when you have normal electricity, you're dealing with a positive and a negative, and it's flowing from the uh, it's flowing from the negative to the positive. You, know, you have the flow of the electrons, and that is your electrical potential. You have the potential uh, pressure of the electrons flowing. Uh, when you have a scalar field, all you have is just one pole. It's like a monopole electric uh, field, it's just the positive, it's just the negative. And it's just negative in terms, uh, in relation to everything around it, meaning it's going out in a 360 sphere in all directions. Uh, an example of that in nature is ball lightning. Um, when you have a DC potential or a high voltage DC potential, um, that's different because the, uh, the field is not, uh, it's not round. It's, uh, you know, skewed to one side toward the other uh, electrode. And uh, 
that's no longer scalar. But when you have scalar fields, you're able to build up much higher potentials than you were ever able to build with, uh, with just uh, you know, a regular electrostatic field. Um, and we think that that's possibly what's going on with beetles, that they have this, um, you know, when their wings are beating, they're creating negative on the, po on the bottom and uh, positive on the top above that uh, cover. And uh, they're able to repel against Earth um, because Earth has a negative potential to it. Um, now, Grabinikov claimed to have built this device for all intents and purposes, it doesn't look like a scam. You know, the, the pictures are, are kind of wanting. You know, there, there hasn't been many people that have replicated the effect since then. So, uh, uh, you know, my eyes are open to anyone who will uh, be willing to try it. Um, and I'd like to see where things go with that. Uh, another device that, that uh, I thought you were talking about earlier is the uh, Alexei Chekhov Gravity Flyer. Now, this thing seems to be put together out of junk. Um, this guy in Russia, he has a Tesla coil, high voltage power supply. Uh, he has a, a piezo uh, electric. Um, it's basically a, an ultrasound microphone on top, and he's fiddling around with it, and then suddenly it starts to fly. The power supply is on the ground, so it's not flying with the power on board. It gets up to about 30 feet in height. Um, he uh, circles around it, he puts sticks over it and below it just to show you that there's no strings. Um, when I first saw that, I was like, this is definitely a hoax. You know, it makes no sense. Can't figure out why in the world it would work. There's two disks that are spinning around with magnets on it. I have no fucking clue what's going on. So um, that remained the case until uh, I got a friend of mine to uh, translate the uh youtube video for us um and, and this is the me and the the team jeremiah pop was there and uh wayne ojala and many other uh youtube researchers who've been uh dealing with this stuff and uh word for word she was explaining to us what he was saying and we started to realize that, that there might be actually something there because he, he was uh, at the edge of science talking about concepts that we were only recently becoming aware of such as electro uh, uh, rotating magnetic fields, uh, how they how they differ and create different effects. He was also talking about rotating static fields, which we know uh, produces some effect. He was also talking about um, that the center disk is uh, being hit with um, RF radio frequency in the uh, in its resonant range, meaning that it would have been creating standing wave waves on the surface. He also shows this device that was used for, for checking for the standing waves, uh, which basically looked like an electro, um, a voltmeter with um, two probes coming out, like, like a bi, uh, bipole antenna, a dipole antenna, and with each end connected to, you know, one to the positive, one to the uh, negative. And then there was another, um, antenna that was connected to ground, I think, in the center. And when he said that when the device was properly tuned, he'd see a potential across those two 
um, and the potential would be DC, it wouldn't be changing, and that's how you know that the device is in tune. When you see it in AC, then you know that it's uh, out of tune, and slowly it goes down to zero hertz, which is a DC potential. Um, so we knew that, that he's dealing with standing waves, he's dealing with uh, rotating magnetic fields, or rotating static fields, and he also had an ultrasound uh, transducer that was shaking the center disk at its resonant frequency. Um, and after seeing all that, we, the interest in our group uh, just kept on rising. Um, there was a, uh, a scientist or an um, anti-gravity researcher here in the U.S. named Chris, uh, um, uh, Chris Hardeman, um, based out of Oklahoma City, uh, Oklahoma. And uh, this past January, he uh, built a device, got, saw 80 grams of weight loss, and uh, a week or two later, he died of a heart attack at work. Um, so we contacted uh, his uh, widow, and I flew down to Oklahoma City and basically cleared out all of his work and brought it over here to the lab in New Jersey so we continue can continue his work. Um, I'd also like to uh, you know, give a shout out to Flo Hardeman for, uh, for donating everything to science. Uh, we're going to put it to good use, and uh, if anything comes of that, we'll, we'll definitely uh, mention his name in the name in the credit. Uh, one thing that I thought was very interesting is that he was using this uh, Tesla coil. This is something that uh, uh, Alexei Chekhov was using as well. He was using a a um, special type of Tesla coil that is self-tuning, and uh, it's very difficult to tune that Tesla coil to be in resonance with the plate. Um, and you'd have to have frequencies that are very, very high uh, compared to what a Tesla coil can normally put out uh, in the order of like 200 to 600 megahertz, depending on the, on the disk uh, size. So um, that, that's why, one of the reasons why we're going toward an RF transmitter instead, basically a ham radio. Uh, you can create the same effects and have it work every time because uh, Alexei Chekhov would fiddle around with the uh, device trying to tune it for hours before he would get lift off. Um, and uh, we, we would want a device that you just uh, flip a switch and it takes off. Um, those are all thrusting effects. If they do work, they'll be pulling or pushing against space time or against standing magnetic fields if they do work. And um, they, you'd have a hard time actually building a device strong enough to uh, take off on its own. Another thing is, is that, uh, and this is something we do see with flying saucers, is that they, um, they, they need, they, they can't be touching the ground when they're powering up because if they're touching the ground, all the, the resonance of the craft will change and you have other effects. It'd be very difficult to get off those first five feet, which is why they kind of land on uh, landing struts or they try not to land at all. Also the, um, the original craft from uh, Germany we saw that those were suspended uh, in the air. Um, also, uh, another thing we see with flying saucers is the glow that surrounds the craft. That only happens when they're at altitude. When they're you know less than 100 feet off the ground, they're just plain metallic, no glow. Uh, but as soon as they get up there a couple hundred feet, we start to see the glow. That would, that would be explained by um, high voltage scalar fields. Yeah, the ionization is happening from the high voltage scalar fields, mm -hmm. uh, which again, scalar fields are vol voltage potential versus the outside versus, you know, the 360 around the craft. 
So if you, you get to voltage potentials in the millions of volts, um, you can start seeing these ionizations. And the reason why there's no lightning between the craft and the ground is because um, as they're building up their potentials, they're flying farther away. If they came closer to the ground, there would be a, a, a slow breakdown um, and the, uh, the scalar potential would drop. But we do see some lightning strikes between craft and power lines, high voltage power lines that, that have been observed in the past. Um, you know, that, that fits in with that theory pretty well. Um, there's a couple of uh, people who are currently working on the Gravifier device. One of them is um, in our group, his name is uh, Tony Robertson. He uh, worked for NASA. He was on the team with Ming Li when they tried to uh, reproduce the, um, the Podkolonov spinning disk experiment, which is the other experiment that uh, Eugene Podkolonov did. Um, uh, they never actually completed that experiment because uh, they ran through their budget trying to get the uh, superconducting disks uh, built, which they successfully did after getting a 1,000-ton uh, uh, press in order to press it together. Um, so that, that was a pretty difficult build. Um, later discovered that it, if the effect actually worked, which was supposedly a gravity shielding effect of some, of some sort, it would have actually been more about the way that they spun the disk it wasn't using a, uh, a motor to spin. They were using rotating magnetic fields. And we told you before, a rotating magnetic field can produce some sort of effect on all matter. You know, it's sort of like a magnet for everything, even non-magnetic materials. And it may be possible to uh, amplify that effect and create some sort of uh, something in space-time that you can latch onto. Um, that's something we should definitely look into. Another uh, team member... Uh, uh, Charles Crawford, he's in, uh, based out of Texas. Um, he's in direct contact with, uh, with uh, Alexei Chekhov and has actually purchased some parts from him and uh, should be receiving them shortly. And uh, there's also Russell Anderson, who's worked on the Searle effect generator. Um, who, uh, we talked about that earlier, but he's working on the um, gravity flyer at, at the moment. In, in the hopes that if he gets it to work, he'll be able to sell it, you know, sell kits or sell a working device and uh, use that money toward building a soil effect generator. Um, so that there's there's quite a few teams that are working on it. We also have a guy named uh, Alex Jones, not the Alex Jones. This is somebody of the same name who, um, who lives around the corner over here in, uh, in New York, and he's interested in this uh, in this effect as well. So um, there's quite a few people who are interested in that in that experiment, and, uh, um, and then what really are they going to do with it? Um, well, if it works, they'll you know show everyone the effect. We'll try to figure out what is actually making it tick, and is there a way to uh, amplify the effect and uh, you know make a full size craft out of it. Well, don't you think we've been building crafts like this in secret for the last uh, 50, 60 years? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, anything that I'm doing here in the lab or, you know, you, that any of the people that we're working with are doing could have been done 60 years ago. There's no reason no reason why not. Um, you know, it's not like we're, we're doing anything that advanced. Um, it could have, uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of the equipment we're working with is about that old. So, 
it, it might have even some of the equipment might have even been used in the original experiments. So yeah, we are reinventing the wheel. Totally. Admit yeah, well, but, uh, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't meant as a put down there. Yeah, exactly. That's my yeah my my yeah, intent was not the a most important put part. down, but it needs yeah it needs to uh, because I think most people are comfortable with the idea that such that such propulsion systems exist. I mean, how many people haven't seen a flying saucer? Uh, guys, we're coming up on the um, top of the hour. I mean, the bottom of the hour. Excuse me. Um, yeah. So uh, we're going to take this break, and when we come back, uh, are you up for taking callers? If we get any money. Um, Mark? Um, yeah, sure. I, I, would, I would love to hear some questions and uh, okay. you know, or ho- hopefully with somebody uh, with, with some interesting knowledge. And Okay, so guys, when, when we come back, uh, you can call the uh, participation line, which is um, uh, our call-in number is 917-889-8802. So, uh, so you can call in and uh, and we'll take your call if you've got any questions for our guests. Uh, but we will continue to talk about anti-gravity as soon as we come back from this break. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Holdwin and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com.
and welcome back to the other side of midnight. I'm your host for tonight, Keith Morgan, usually doing the audio and the engineering. But uh, tonight, we've got uh, Mark Sokol, and we've opened up our caller line. So if you'd like to call in, if you've got a question, uh, it's 917-889-8802, and uh, we'll take your calls. Let's get back to Mark real quick. So, Mark, uh, is this kind of tech really stimulating the blood? <laughs> is it getting you going? Because you, you know you're sitting oh. there right on the edge of, of what's new. And, and there's more stuff <laughs> out there that's just – there's so much tech that's coming out right now. We're in a new industrial revolution. No, change that. We're in a new technological revolution, and most people don't see it coming. They have no idea what's coming down the, down the pike, and it's going to change everything. Uh, the way we use energy, the way we generate energy, uh, and the way we get around. Uh, this could have been there a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's mostly the way we get around that I hope to change. Um, if, 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 let's say, we, uh, we get something that can get us into space, on just a couple kilowatt hours of energy, um, and I'm talking like battery powered or uh, hydrogen fuel cell powered, no, nothing too exotic, nothing too out there. Using off the shelf technologies, we just find a way to convert that electrical energy potential into you know, either dynamic nuclear orientation or some sort of thrust to make the craft just take off and fly. Uh, one of the uh, the first things we'd want to do is to you know, clean up low Earth orbit from all the space junk. Um, another thing we, we want to do is uh, mine the asteroid belt. There's asteroids out there that are near pure nickel or iron or, you know, even rare earth elements and stop destroying our planet uh, with all these open pit mines and just pull them straight out of the uh, asteroid belt and bring them down here to refineries clean them up and turn them into uh, you know, more Tesla vehicles, more electric cars or something like that. That would be um, that, that would be useful use of this technology, getting rid of airplanes, you know, re- replacing those with, uh, you know, flying saucer type devices and um, getting rid of uh, mine, open pit mining operations. Um, I'm sure with the advent of uh, anti-gravity craft that are, capable of interstellar missions will probably come in contact with extraterrestrial races that have been um, trying to leave us alone for the most part because of the uh, prime directive. Um, they, they don't want to interfere with our uh, development. But once we reach that point, we're, we're uh, open for contact. Ooh, so ooh. There's a lot of changes that will be happening with this technology come to light. I think in 2022. I got, I got two questions for you. Oh, go ahead, Ron. Uh, uh, yeah, I got two. I got two questions for you there. Uh, one, inter- interesting that uh, you don't believe in religion, but you do believe in the Prime Directive. You really think they would follow something like that, or is it just something that we made up based on our ethos? Uh, yeah, I do believe that they would follow something like that, and I wouldn't say that I don't believe in religion. I actually believe that the uh, Torah or the uh, you know, the five books of Moses and everything else were written true to word of historical events that actually happened. I'm just reading them in a literal sense. 
And uh, one thing that it doesn't say in the Torah ever is the word God. It talks about yeah. Jehovah and Elohim and how the sons of the Elohim had kids with the daughter of man, which basically puts them into flesh and blood bodies. So this Jehovah dude who's talking to Moses and who's given us Ten Commandments, he's flesh and blood too, and he's coming in on a spaceship um, from the heavens, which is also known as outer space. And you know, and why does God need all... a spaceship? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, right, you need I, to I, read I, the Lost Book of Inky. The Lost Book of Inky. Uh, as a matter of fact, Keith, I was reading a new translation of it just last night. And there's a, there's some interpretations in there that very interestingly point to the fact that a, uh, Enki and his friends were cannibals. We were a food source. There's indications in there of that, and that's what they were that's what they were taking care of us for to grow better cattle. And no, uh, we were we were supposed to mine the gold to help close the hole in their atmosphere. Da, but da, but there are yeah, Ron, there are reliefs. There it's are reliefs. There are reliefs. There are reliefs in China, on the wall, showing some weird reptilian uh, creature and another creature that looked like a hippopotamus head, but they had humanoid body forms, and there were humanoids sitting at tables. And one, it, the uh, reptilian devi- uh, guy, was stabbing a small human with a spear. Uh, another one. Uh, he didn't look like a hippopotamus. He looked like something else. But he's rolling over one of them like he's tenderizing well, the, him with a big wheel. Well, the wheel. Egyptians had two major and, goddesses that looked and, like hippopotami. Yeah, and uh, then the hippopotamus so, so guy was, he was throwing the guy into the into the pot. It's all ancient history that was technology that our ancestors, those primitive idiots, didn't understand. And now we're at a point where we can understand the technology – Okay, so we can look at this differently, and all those writings in the Bible were written by people who were superstitious and God-fearing people because they thought those people who had the technology were gods. We know better now, so we need to be well, growing up if, and looking yeah, at this differently. Do we? Yes. What, what That's the only way we're going to grow. For God? What if God just means a revered alien? I mean, Zeus, Poseidon, Jehovah, Allah, Krishna, uh, even God of Mercury, he was a freaking messenger God. What if God just means a revered alien? Suddenly it all makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, I got no problem with that. Of course, it's it's perfectly reasonable to uh, grant that some beings you run into might be su- in every way we could measure off the scale. You know, they can't, can't fight them, certainly can't beat them, uh, and can't understand half of what they do, but by 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 God, uh, they seem to be useful sometimes. You know, the ancient Egyptians actually hated their gods, uh, and they weren't alone in that, but it was unusual. Uh, they were highly revered by the Sumerians for some reason. They had the opposite opinion. Uh, but, yeah, you know, they were interacting with somebody not from here. And I, I can be slightly affronted by the idea that they would come down and say, well, let's play gods. But, you know, the um, situations are such that people would normally take to that and uh, it's depending on the divergence, you know, there's more to that Arthur C. Clarke quote than just the every, anything uh, sufficiently advanced could be indistinguishable from magic. Point is, yes, of course. So it all looked like magic to the uh, people that had no technology. And uh, they tried to explain it. And we try to explain their explanations as if it makes any sense. And usually we can't. But I, 
the other question I had, though, was very simple, Mark. Uh, do you think that whoever visits us are all using the same technology? No, there's got to be variations um, of that. Everybody's got to have yeah, a different variation. There's got to there's yeah, more than one way to do the same thing. Well, no, yeah, let, yeah but what is what, I want to fit it in the Mark thing. I, I think there's also there's more than one way of achieving these effects. I think fundamentally, um, there's probably just only a handful of basic concepts of what they're doing, like you know a, a flaw in Maxwell's equation or something that's missing over mm-hmm. there that they're using. Um, in the electromagnetic uh, field effects to create this linear propulsion. Um, I think dynamic nuclear orientation is, is most likely the, the key effect that um, allows for interstellar travel. And even that, there's many ways to achieve it. If, have, are you guys familiar with the ARV, the alien reproduction vehicle that Mark Candlish talked about? Sure. Yeah, well, yes, I am. Ben Rich said that there was a flaw in the mathematics, but we figured it out. And that's how they were able to create what he was talking about, being able to take E.T. home and all the other stuff. There was a flaw well, in the math. And, you know, he made that comment in a couple of speeches. I don't recall that he published a book about it. So there's a lot of, a lot of interpretation there. I'm not, I'm not thinking that Ben Rich was giving away all the secrets. I think people were just saying, oh, well, he, he wasn't giving away that. secrets. He was just making these comments that were mm-hmm. out there as far as anybody who really looked at this whole thing. He was trying to tell us on the sly, hey, we have this technology he said these things are locked up in black projects so tight they would take an act of God to get them released. And he's just telling us, hey, guys, pay attention. Just like when Eisenhower well, uh, got out of office, he said, beware of the military-industrial complex. He didn't say, oh, don't look out for the military. He just said, you know, beware of the military-industrial military complex. complex. They're, they're, they're the ones that are – facilitating this cover-up it's not really government mm-hmm. but if you want to look deeper mm-hmm. into that uh into that statement that there's a flaw in the mathematics and we figured it out uh, you should check out the presentation on apec or uh, the alternative propulsion engineering conference which is a uh-huh. zoom-based conference that i helped found uh it happens every two weeks and there was a presentation from richard van Durek, uh, which I recommend everyone watch. And in it, he gets into you know minute detail going over uh, where the flaw in Maxwell's equation for um, electromagnetic energy, uh, where the flaw was and um, how to expand upon it um, and uh, you know make it into some useful linear effect. Um, was this something that Arthur Heaviside did? Uh, Heaviside ha- had a simplification of uh, yeah. I equation. thought most of the flaws in Maxwell's equations came from Heaviside's redo. That is um, true. That is true. The flaws came from Heaviside. Uh, Maxwell's equations uh, accounted for a lot more effects that normally um, amount to zero in many cases. But when you get to the extremes, or when you get to resonances, then then they start to uh, you know show, and then you're able to you know, latch onto those effects and amplify them in some way and, and, and create um, you know, stronger effects. And that's, that's something that if anyone's interested in the electromagnetic way of creating linear thrust, you definitely look into. 
Um, but getting back cool. to uh, you know the the gods and the, the stories in the Bible, one of the interesting mm-hmm. stories that uh, that we've seen during the Exodus was uh, the Egyptians were chasing the Jews down to the beach, and um, this was all in Egypt or in the Sinai Desert. And the, Moses was there, and they they had the Ananiah uh, um, Kavod or the, uh, the those pillars of fire and smoke. There were seven of them at the time. Uh, this is according to uh, scripture, and uh, one of them was behind them, and there was a couple on the side and one in front, and the Egyptians shot arrows at the Jews, and the arrows came flying back at the Egyptians, so the Egyptians obviously stopped shooting the arrows. This is something that we've seen during the Vietnam War as well. In 1973, uh, there was a patrol boat in the, um, uh, the DMZ, in the demilitarized zone, that had a flying saucer with two occupants clearly visible in a hatch above it. And they started shooting at it. It was like glowing red and whatever. And they started shooting at it with their guns and there was a return fire. And it was like bullets were coming back at them. And then they shot a missile. The missile didn't come back at them, but the bullets were coming back at them and they couldn't touch this craft. And soon they realized, you know, after a couple of their men got killed, that the bullets they were shooting at it were coming right back at them. And the next day, the uh, craft appeared and uh, shot that same missile that they fired at it at a um, uh, an Australian boat and damaged it greatly and eventually sunk or something like that. But um, the most interesting thing is when we come up with the explanation at a 3M plant in 1995, um, 3M is the manufacturer of many tapes and plastic films and lots of Lots of shit. Almost everyone in America has something at home made out of 3M, even Band-Aids. C4 are made there. Yeah, they make C4. They make, C4. Uh, they make a ton of shit. So at one factory, right. they were unfurling this massive roll of plastic. Language. It was a, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, this massive roll yeah. of plastic, really thin material, and it was going on a huge uh, roller system up like 10 feet and or 20 feet across, like a huge system in order to keep the tensions, um, you know, the, the, the tensions correct. Now, th- this in this factory, they've always had a problem because uh, these plastics are very strong um, dielectrics and they're able to maintain a static field on their surfaces. Uh, on this particular day, there was something going on and the uh, static was just building up and building up and building up. And it got to a point where they tried measuring the field and uh, their meters were maxing out. And uh, they tried walking in between where the, uh, uh, where the um, sheets were unfurling and they felt this sort of invisible wall and they threw something at it. It would fly right back at them. And that's exactly oh. what we're seeing with the what about uh, cats. Were all the were all the cats in the neighborhood stuck to it like flies? Uh with <laughs> <laughs> the cats in the <laughs> okay. I don't know where the cats came from, but anything that they flew at it, whether it was magnetic, whether it was uh conductive, plastic, any materials they threw at it would come flying back at them with the same kinetic energy that they threw threw it in at which is pretty much what happened with the Egyptians, pretty much what happened at the demilitarized zone um, mm-hmm. with that UFO craft. Um, and it's what you'd expect of a spacecraft flying through space. That, that, you know, If there's micro-asteroids or something, micrometeorites, they would need some way of deflecting it. So this is probably the deflector field 
testing turned mm-hmm. on, which is using some sort of scalar energy, um, scalar potential, and uh, that's able to just deflect everything out of the way. So here we have both a um, a miracle happened in the Bible being mm-hmm. replicated by accident in a 3M plant here in the United States. I think it was in Pennsylvania in 1995. And eventually they, they, they brought in some experts. At first, the, uh, the owner of the plant wasn't sure whether he should uh, try to fix it or start selling tickets. Um, oh, I probably know where it was. It was. Could it have been DuPont instead of 3M? No, it was definitely 3M. Definitely 3M. Okay, well, then it was um, probably in Michigan. I don't know. That's where they are. But they, they, they have, they have headquarters. They have quite a few plants, um, but uh, eventually they figured out mm-hmm. to uh, negate this effect by putting like grounding wires along the rollers and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's it's pretty pretty interesting that you're able to replicate these effects. They're they're not mysterious. They're just science that was misunderstood, and uh, in many ways, it's been covered up until this time. And there, there's a reason why you're taught the simplification of Maxwell's equations in college uh, and you're not, they, they don't go into details like they normally do. Um, Keith, is there any callers yet? Uh, no, no callers. Uh, we're about 10 minutes out from the end of the show. Blog spot's a little complicated that way sometimes. Yeah, you never know. Yeah, but we had, we, we were in second place on uh, blog, uh, talk stream, talk stream live and on uh, Paranormal Radio, and we had pretty about 105 uh, listeners on our our stream server, so uh, we were doing pretty good tonight. Uh, if anybody yeah, wants there. to call in, if you're still listening, uh, area code 917-889-8802. We still got nine minutes before we hit the end of the show, so give us a call if you'd like to questions or comments mark we're here yeah, mark there must yeah, have been a loose end somewhere there there has to be no 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 i mean i meant i meant in you i meant in what you've been covering because you're uh you have been surprisingly agile and um moved in many directions so i just is there something that you need to um put a cap on some um yeah just to tell people how to find me uh if you're interested in this technology if you want to help out in any way we are looking for uh, volunteers to help us out in the lab uh we're located in hawthorne new jersey so i like to joke that we're the spacex of the east spacex we're in hawthorne new jersey um our website is uh, falconspace.org which takes you straight to the youtube channel where you can see basically our our um experiments um you can also check us out on alien scientists uh on youtube uh with many uh, of the live streams there in, involve uh visits to the lab also if you want to check out the alternative propulsion engineering conference to uh get an in-depth view of these experiments and uh different uh, theories and ideas and things that our people are working on check out altpropulsion.com it's a-l-t propulsion.com um there's also a youtube channel for alternative propulsion and there's also um tim ventura who uh moderates the show and hosts the show he's he has his own channel called um american anti-gravity which is something that he's been working on for about 20 years now we have robert morningstar he's one of the uh enterprise mission 
guys, is, uh, he's on the line. You guys like to – I'm bringing him on now. So, Robert. Hi. Doing, Robert? Hey, Robert. Hello. I'm doing fine. Thank oh, you. Thanks. I'm uh, just calling to say oh. I've enjoyed the show immensely. And I've been thinking of a question. So here's the question for Mark. Mark, if I could uh, provide you with all of the resources you need, including 250-foot uh, metallic discs that uh, whose resonance you know, uh, how would you build the craft, but what would be the power source? to generate the millions of uh, electron volts that you would need for this? What power source would you uh, use? Okay. I would um, probably go with uh, a hydrogen fuel cell with, uh, with a hybrid battery. So it would be a hybrid electric-electric, similar to the Toyota Mirai, which is uh, an electric vehicle mostly driven in California. You might have seen them there. And um, the reason for that is twofold. First of all, off-the-shelf technology, um, and also the side effect of it, uh, the output is water. So if you get stuck anywhere, water is a good thing to have. Um, also, you can fill up the tanks pretty rapidly, and uh, uh, with a large craft, you can fit quite a few hydrogen tanks um, in the hole, and you know, you'd also need oxygen tanks as well, and uh, that would that would pretty much give you power source for you know many megawatt hours of power. In a, um, well, you megawatts, but uh, you would need uh, millions of electron volts. Wouldn't you need a long series of step-up transformers after you have the basic charge coming out of the uh, hydrogen cells? Um. Well. Depends what you mean by millions of volts. Are we talking about scalar potential? You can probably do that off of a AA battery, because if, if you're, you know, slowly siphoning off the energy and building up these static potentials, um, you know, you, a AA battery can uh, ch- uh, charge a Van de Graaff up to a uh, half a million volts. Or it depends on the size of the half of the uh, Van de Graaff. But yeah, voltage without current is not very difficult to make. Um, especially what, when it's what is the output of the yeah. current uh, most efficient hydrogen cell that we have today? What is the highest output of, uh, of the best uh-huh. hydrogen we have currently? I think I think you're, you're it, they used it on the uh, space shuttle. I think uh, off the shelf units can do like thirty or forty uh, kilowatts. Uh, continuous or no, probably even more than that. Now, if it's in a car, it's probably continuous. Around I, that seems like seems like a lot. Um, I thought yeah. I thought it was a lot less than that, and they had to use multiple batteries. I, I, I understand Robert's question. Would this craft rotate? There's no, no limit. Um, there's many reasons why it would rotate, uh, depending on what your propulsion system is, uh, like the. Uh, the ARV device, or the alien reproduction device that Mark McCallish talks about, it had a spinning disc in it with a pulsing electromagnet around it to create the dynamic Actually, those were machine. spinning cylinders, more like the Searle device. A lot of people have looked at, um, I knew Mark very well, and uh, I know his sketch. A lot of people have had trouble finding the disc because it's not a disc. It's, he's got spinning cylinders like the Searle devices, you know, like uh, long bearings rather than ball bearings. But that's the question I had is um, 
would it spin and of necessity or could it be unspinning and still fly? Uh, it depends on uh, it, it depends on whether there's something spinning inside of it, um, and there's there's lots of effects that you can get from spinning. It's literally yeah. the only thing you can do. It, yeah, well, what would, uh, the spinning would cause um, precession effects. Uh, what, what would that do to its maneuverability? Its its tendency to uh, turn 90 degrees opposite direction where you apply the force and how would you apply the force would be that would that be the external power devices you were talking about earlier uh yeah that would be either the gyroscopes you'd be losing using either electrostatics you won't be able to use a rocket because mm -hmm. if you are um, making the craft weightless then the rocket output would also be weightless so there wouldn't be an, an, an equal and opposite reaction um, they'll also screw with the field a bit. What? But, uh, huh? So let me share something with you. It just came to my mind. I, I, I know a really, really great, um, let's call him a technician. He's a master of all trades. His name is Lance. And uh, many, many years ago, he had an ET encounter. And the, they were instructing him on the, uh, the steering device. And what they showed him was uh, three gyroscopes that were mounted in a particular way, like an XYZ, and by varying the rotation on the gyroscopes, uh, they claimed that that's how they were able to maneuver the craft. So since you've shared so much tonight, I thought I'd throw that one to you. It's a nice concept. Well, we're coming up to the end of the show. so. Okay, so I'm, I'll bail out, but thank you very much. It was a very enjoyable show. And uh, okay. I'll give my best to Tim Ventura as well. Bye-bye. Okay, so we're coming up to the end of the show right now, and uh, oh, this has been a uh, talking about this kind of technology because this is what's going to change the world. Uh, most people don't see it coming, but uh, I see a freight train coming down the track. All right, um, is there anything you'd like to to uh, add? Um, just just. Yeah, just once again to plug uh, my website, uh, falconspace.org. That, again, will take you directly to our YouTube channel where you can just uh, watch experiments. Um, also, allpropulsion.com. That would um, take you to the uh, APEC website, and you'll be able to sign up for, um, uh, for, for the upcoming conferences and uh, learn more about anti-gravity and all different uh, forms and different theories and stuff. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, uh, Falcon Space Program at gmail.com to connect, and we'll be able to, uh, you know, collab and try to get you to Falcon Space Mail. Um, okay, Falcon. guys, we're out of runway, uh, and I've added a, a minute to the end of the show here. So, thank you for being our guest, Mark. Stick around for our after party. We'll see you on the other side. You've been listening to The Other Side of Midnight. I was your host, Keith Morgan. Our guest was Mark Sokol. See you next week.